By the sweet 100 eyes of Argus, we made it. That's what Gabe said. We're here. A little late, but right on time. We have so much to talk about tonight. And so welcome to Marvelous Demystifiers, episode 21. We're going to be talking about the sixth and season finale episode of season one of Loki. And man, there's a lot to talk about. I reserve the right to tap out halfway and do the second half later. We'll see because I got 90 slides. I've been working all day and tap out halfway. Oh, hey, Gabe, I can hear myself coming through your speakers there. Be careful. (laughs) I don't know what's going on there. You figure it out. We're we're good. There's no tech problems. There's just tech solutions. Anyway, y'all know where we left off. We left off with episode five, where they defeated the big smoke monster of purgatory, like that old TV show Lost, and they've made it to the end, the end of time. So, Gabe, I know you had some stuff to say hanging off from the previous episode, and I thought maybe I'd give you a time to attempt to do that in a you know, concise manner before we blast off into this big slideshow. What do you think? I'm having a loop in my own audio right now. Uh, Hold on. Let's just wait a second. If we just wait a second, I'm almost at the end of the loop. Okay. You can hear me? I can hear you. It's your curse of the tech gods. I'm in a time loop. I'm like a, I'm like Loki when he gets schizoed out. I'm like stuck two seconds behind myself. I think I got to back out and come back in. I'll be right back, everybody. Sorry about this. <laughs> and Gabe's having all kinds of yeah, man. fun with it. All right, back out, come back in. We'll give this one more go. We'll give one more try. I'm ready if I have to. I'll do this whole thing by myself, damn it. <laughs> I've got a lot to say. And I appreciate everyone who's here. So I'm going to... I think just kind of get into it. I don't want to waste your time. I want you to get straight to the gravy. I mean, I was literally drowning in gravy preparing this analysis. So the first thing we're going to do, talk about this title, episode six, for all time, always. This is the catchphrase of the time cops, the TVA. And if you remember, I mentioned last time that for all time, always in the septenary cipher, is 52. And I think that that is the a reference to the 52 weeks of the year, right? And that's the whole, that's all of time. That's the entire circular cycle. <laughs> and let's talk about this. I, I hope Gabe comes in time to read this slide. In 1932, Young commented on Abraxas. The Gnostic symbol of Braxis, a made-up name meaning 365, the Gnostics used it as the name of their supreme deity. He was a time god. Young described him in a way that echoes his description here. Just as this archetypal world of the collective unconscious is exceedingly paradoxical, always yea and nay, (laughs) That figure of Abraxas means the beginning and the end. It is life and death. Therefore, it is represented by a monstrous figure, 
It is a monster because it is the life of vegetation in the course of one year, the spring and the autumn, the summer and the winter, the yay and nay of nature. So Abraxas is really identical with the Demiurgos, the world creator. And as such, he is surely identical with the Purasha or with Shiva. Young notes that Abraxas is the god of the frogs. <laughs> and that the god of the frogs or toads, the brainless one, is the union of the Christian god with Satan. In his later writings, Young argued that the Christian god image was one-sided, that it left out the factor of evil. Can I bring Gabe back in? And so, you know, after seeing the title for all time, always being 52, Everybody. we got to bring up Abraxas, which is 365, also the full cycle of the year. If you remember in the previous episode, when I brought up Abraxas, it was because there was a homunculus of frog Thor in a jar. And here you have Young mentioning that Abraxas is the god of frogs. So, Gabriel, are we out of your time loop prison? Yes, I think things are things are back in sync again. This, uh, yeah, this is a great way to start off because it will come full circle uh, towards the end. But, you know, uh, I recently learned that there was a, I think it was Athanasius Kircher, who uh, was a, he was kind of like the real hero of Alexandria. If any of these guys are fucking real. <laughs> he's the more real, the more believable because he's more proximal in time, but he was a, a machinist and he had all these inventions. One of which was a, uh, automaton that would literally lift up its hand and wave. And it had a voice. It had some device in it. that would say Salvi, which in Italian is just basically hello. Hey, how you doing? Health and wealth. Um, and so and uh, and nobody could ever find out how he was able to make words come out of an automaton. That was the accomplishment was that he actually made it speak. And so what I think is really fascinating about that is this is the original uncanny valley. And think of what a fortune, what a lifetime of wealth you could generate off of this nifty contraption of an uncanny valley and the psychological impact on people and then the reputation of being misunderstood rippling out from that that you have uh, a mechanistic device on command but then i want to also say the word the original word for necromancy is ventriloquism and the history of that word expands out into so many things guys uh, I'm just now wrapping my head around how uh, the word for necromancy, like controlling the dead, is ventriloquism. And that's what we do when we do the seance of science. We summon uh, Einstein into the conversation we, uh, and we evoke his magical formula, E equals MC squared. Now I can speak for Einstein and predict when you're going to get to the shopping mall uh, with your rate of speed and whatever relative velocity. So the seance is ventriloquism that goes back to uh, Athanasius Kircher, who made the first mechanistic device that waves salvi, which is written on Baphomet's arm, by the way. Salva is, they say it's an alchemical recipe for dissolving things, which your brain does quite well. Um, and then coagula is putting it back together. 
So yeah, that's just kind of uh, the, my most recent discoveries around the Baphomet that it might've been just a gimmick, like a machine that got a really big reputation that they turned into a, a, a come no further, be warned, turn away at your own peril. Uh, everything from here is scary, Uncanny Valley, the original well, Uncanny Valley. The machine aspect is the mechanism of the universe, how the universe works. The deus ex machina, right? God in the machine, the thing that shows up to turn the tide at the last second to solve the problem, solve a in, in narratives and fiction. Abraxas definitely represents that because you have Young here talking about the yay and the nay of the unconscious. And one thing that this, especially this episode, but I mean, the series as a whole, and maybe all of humans, humanity's forays into fiction are in some way, on some level, on a soul level, an attempt to figure this out. The uncontrollable forces of the unconscious is what we're talking about here. That, and, you know, Loki and Sylvie, the anima and animus, they are the uncontrollable aspect of your unconscious. And it will always show up to throw a monkey wrench in your plan, right? That's the whole thing of like, you make plans and God laughs. God is the uncontrollable force of your unconscious coming in to uh, create the tower moment. And a perfect segue to talk about my next slide here. Let's bring it up. Oh, okay. So... As we've been doing, we're in, we're analyzing this episode through the lens of the Thoth Tarot. And man, has that borne fruit. <laughs> so much fruit. I think it's pretty undeniable that the theme card of this episode is the tower. Big time. The tower yes, is sir. card 16. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, full on agreement. Um, and this helps me um, really reinforce and build a perspective on how um, uh, I I'm seeing this as all things um, Pegasus. I think that Pegasus is the tower and it's not explicit. I, you, I had to really read into it. A, a big part of it is John McHugh uh, telling us about Pegasus Square. Uh, signifying the garden, uh, the tableau, uh, the story. Um, but then also uh, knowing the Zodiac and knowing how it is arranged, uh, it basically is like the wintertime blanket, the blanket of snow accumulating. Uh, think of being snowed in. You have towers of snow. Um, but there's another thing about this Pegasus thing that has to do with with white because we're in the winter. And so think of piles of paper, piles of stories, piles of the uh, the Library of Alexandria. Um, there's a lot of things about like almost you could almost think of the snow as exploded paperwork. And now it's time to go in interior. We're in hibernation. So we're going in to do the inner work uh, to make it through the uh, this wilderness. Uh, so yeah, uh, there, there's the Grus constellation is a uh, is the basically the is the goose. Then there's the Swan constellation, Cygnus, 
Cygnus is white. Pegasus is white. There's a lot of strange things around white in this episode. (laughs) And I just want to kind of summon a lot of the research around the white fragility spell. That wintertime, the white is the most fragile thing there is. If you look at it with sunshine, it'll melt. You know, so uh, the white fragility is a iconic trigger, not just about the color of your skin. White fragility is about old age. Well, also, man, it's like coming into the later years. Well, white can be white can be disrupted with a single speck, right? The purity is sullied with even a single grain. (laughs) But the black, you can throw all kinds of shit at black and you don't even notice it's there. Right. That's the difference between like corruption and purity. There's definitely a big black and white theme in this episode. Right. Yeah. And of course, this is episode 1.6. The tower card is card 16. I find that interesting. I'm just going to go through a few things in this slide and I'll kick it back to you. So the tower represents danger, sudden change, destruction, hot crisis, higher learning, liberation purification through fire and think about what you're just saying with the white when you burn something to to ashes the ashes left the purification that's left is white this is also called the eye in the thoth tarot it's sometimes referred to as the eye because the big eye at the top of the tower the the big theme here is the destruction of our small self our our little s self ego idea and, and how our limitations in consciousness are destroyed inevitably by the sine wave of time. Now the letter with this card is pay pay means mouth. You see the mouth at the bottom of this card. We'll be returning to that idea quite a lot. The design of the pay letter is said to be a mouth with a tooth emerging from its upper jaw. And there's also this idea with the number 80 you know, there's a letter pi in Greek that also equals 80. The Hebrew letter pay equals 80. The, uh, according to Judaism in the Old Testament, Moses was 80 years old when he led the Jews out of Egypt and 80 when he transmitted the Torah to them. So 80 and pay in Judaism is connected to communication, which is also 80 mercury atomic number of that particular element we know mercury is the god of eloquence and communication pay is the alphabetical symbol of mars to to the hebrew language and this card the tower is ruled by mars and there's this interesting thing with the letter pay and p that p can also be ph and it can also be f so the letter pay is also sometimes called fay and in the modern Hebrew, there's like a different way of pointing the letter to make it a P or an F. So we have Fay. <laughs> and I don't know if you've heard, but the Fay, the fairy folk, they don't like iron. Iron repels them, you know, <laughs> and that's so that's all in the mix with this as well. Nice, man. Yes. Uh And, you know, there are there's a mouth at the bottom with the fire coming out of it. That's obvious on the face because it has clearly has teeth. But there is also another mouth very subtly encoded. If you think of that eyeball as as one big head eating the castle, there's actually a mouth engulfing the top of the of the tower 
so there are, there's a subtle, there's a obtuse mouth on the explicit and there's an implicit mouth. Now, everybody think about the term curb stomp. Curb stomp has a very uh, triggering scene. That word should make everybody crawl out of their skin a little bit. If you know what I'm talking about, well, this mouth, not the one that's obvious, the subtle mouth that's eating the top of the tower, that mouth is about to get curb stomped. Put your mouth on the stones, on this rock. And this is a white fragility spell, not only because the scene was about race. It's not about the color. I'm talking about your teeth or fragility. When we say fragility, your teeth breaking, everybody around the world is worried about this. It's a universal catch-all, the fragility of your teeth. And also, don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. That's saying, get them in close, get them in real close, wait until they, they don't know you're here, and then sneak attack. So that's another aspect of the fragility is waiting for the whites of the eyes. And what's at the top? What everybody has, the most vulnerable part of the soul is the window. And that's going to be uh, the star card is another element that's going to come up in a minute with the window. Good stuff, man. I mean, you, you talk about white fragility and I think <laughs> the white people, you know, the the spell that's been cast called white people. Right. And there's a lot of fragility yes. baked into that idea, too, you know, that we have to tiptoe really around is. everybody, that we're the yes. privileged ones and we victim. We are the ones who cause the victimization in the world. So there's that. But yes. I want to talk about also but, the uh, the runic letter Petro or the, the runic P. Actually, and if you I, I should have put them side by side. But if you look at pay and you look at Petro, you can see that they're like you know, a mirror image to each other. There's for sure some relation in the shape of the glyph. And of course, we're talking about Loki. He's a Norse god. So we got, we got to consider the the P rune for the Norse as well. This is uh, fate and chance, the unknowable, the unknown, and play or games. And every single one, every single one of these ideas comes up. And so watch out for them. I may or may not remember when they're happening to point out, hey, this is a Petro moment, but it's all there. It's absolutely all there. Yes. Uh, just a strange little side weave around Petro. Um, this related to Black Swan. The theory of the Black Swan, uh, the story, if you research it, was the first Black Swan that invented that term or gave it life. It was from Perth, Australia, was where they found the first black swan. Um, so we had a weave about that a long time ago. But I think Pertho, or Petro, Petro is 14, is number 14. Um, but yeah, the black swan. But that's interesting because, again, with uh, February 2nd, Groundhog's Day, we got the goose and the swan constellations right there with Pegasus. Uh, so yeah, very apropos. Then we also we should also talk about how Petro is basically the same word as Petra or Petro petrol. <laughs> you know, oil is super black, right? Like pet, right? Totally. Like a uh, Pegasus is like pay gas for the U.S. It's basically the petrodollar, and we we built a tower, we built an empire off of the petrodollar, and now it's taking shots in the balls. 
And Petra or rock is a big theme in this episode too. We'll, we'll see that coming up pretty quick. I'm going to keep us moving. So we have the opening shot where we're getting the Marvel Studios logo and we hear all of these different characters from across the timeline of the Marvel Cinematic Universe from several, several movies and other TV shows. We hear just random one liners from other superheroes and characters in the vast universe and they're going one at a time, but the frequency speeds up until you get to this point when the Marvel Studios logo comes over the top and they're happening. The crowd is so like overlapping with each other that it's all covering itself up. So this is the uh, the Hebrew letters Samek and Kaf. Uh, Kaf final is the second letter. So it's not the same Kaf as what we looked at yesterday, but it's what how they draw it when it's at the end of a word. And Samak equals 60 uh, and <laughs> cough equals 20. So that's an, a, a word that equals 80. Just like in the previous episodes, we're going to be looking for words that equal the number that goes with the letter, that goes with the card, that goes with the episode. So it's a big, huge chain of <laughs> correspondences we're looking at here. And this moment where a multitude or a crowd is speaking through their mouth pay and there there's such a multitude there's such a crowd that it's covering our ability to understand it's concealing well i felt that's a direct hit that's the exact idea here and <laughs> i find it interesting because the context that this word samek kaf is used in is like the multitude of men which cover the earth or ointment that covers the skin and closes the pores. So there's definitely this contextual meaning about enveloping or obstructing that goes on here. I think that this word SK is probably related to our word sack because the sack is a covering. It envelops something and you might be able to hold a, a multitude of something <laughs> in your sack. <laughs> I'm thinking of the ball sack. Think how much semen is in the ball sack. I say that because one of the one of the Hebrew words that equals eighty, it, it basically means like semen virilis, like potent semen. So, like really powerful yang energy. So that's in the mix too. And there's a you know semen. It comes in multitudes. Your sperm can't count. And then as this series or as the episode continues, the first thing we see is a shot of the sun. And what does it say? We think of time as a one-way motion. This is your first clue among many in this episode that Kronos is the sun. It is not the planet or the luminary that we call Saturn. More about that later. But as we're... As we're here at this opening scene, we get a like a big bang and flying through the galaxies and universe video with a series of greatest hits from the sacred timeline of, you know, real so-called real life. Basically, the greatest hits being the psyops and covert agents that have crafted and controlled the worldview of the masses. You know, since we established the idea of a multitude and a veil right before this. I think these following one-liners are quite implicative of deception. So we're starting with Alan Watts is the first one we hear. He's not labeled in the subtitles, but 
that's who it is that's speaking. And he's Alan Watts. He's one. He's a trickier grabble. <laughs> Dylan feels vindicated that they're talking about time and showing the sun. You are vindicated, dude. Kronos is the sun. This episode proves that the you know either God is telling us through these creative people or these people are part of the 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 craft and they know it. Anyway. Alan Watts, he speaks on a lot of stuff. He seems harmless mostly. You know, a lot of people dip their toes into Alan Watts and it's feel good. It makes you feel good. It's trippy. Might, you know, do some mushrooms, smoke some weed, listen to Alan Watts. <laughs> what seems relevant in this dis in his discourse is, and I say it seems relevant because I did like some almost like divination on Alan Watts. I picked a random Alan Watts video and I jumped to a random spot in the timeline of the video. And here's what I hear him talking about. The word person means mask. It means persona. It's the fake self. That the true self is the entirety of all existence, the whole universe. And, you know, He's talking about the person person being a mask, but of course he doesn't go all the way with it and explain the legal system sorcery. That person, that paper C, as you're talking about winter and the paper C, what he's talking about is it's like a, a Maya <clears throat> illusion Buddhism thing for him where, you know, he's telling people who are tripping out already tripping out like in the sixties that they don't really exist and nothing really matters. And your grievances with the world, you know, and the government and, and Vietnam, are, those are like ego, man. You know, it's just ego. It's all fake, man. It's all an illusion, man. <laughs> but he also liked to talk about the big bang and we're seeing the big bang in this opening. What, what would you call it? Montage. So I think we're supposed to take away that, you know, Alan Watts's role in informing as a gatekeeper of the sacred timeline probably has to do with bringing the Buddhist ideas back to the West, the, you know, seeking after oblivion yeah. that Buddhism more or less teaches and also teaching you about that big bang, which is the classic ex nihilo chaos giving birth to time. Right. It's that entire thing. The everything science is actually all, all the big scientific theories are no different. They're just different words, different clothes for the old mystery tr school tradition. I feel like Gabe's ready to jump in. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, man. So everybody should consider uh, that Big Bang is the opposite of Zazin. Uh, the old Hebrew, old oldies, they're all about the universe was created by a, a sucking in. And this Big Bang is kind of uh, a trans digression of that the exact opposite i suspect that uh big bang is spinoza flipping the bird to the guys who put him on uh put him as an outcast as a harim uh and i think a lot of people who are into spinoza are of the alan watts camp and i think that's a crucial dividing line really between spinoza in the in the old ways uh, but one of my favorite Alan Watts isms that I, I pay to everybody to use as they see fit. It's a great one liner. He probably got it from somebody else, but it went something like. Here, let me save you from drowning, said the monkey to the fish as he placed him in the tree. 
Here, let me save you from drowning, said the monkey to the fish as he placed him in the tree. That little phrase could have saved a lot of people a lot of suffering during the lockdowns. You know, it was the best intentions that paved the way to hell right there. So let's all just remember, let me save you from drowning, said the monkey to the fish as he placed him in the tree. It has to come out that way because it it constructs itself retroactively in that wonderful one-liner. So give thanks and praise to Alan Watts for that, wherever he got it from. Oh, there's also this guy named Alan Watt, who's not Alan Watts, no S. And he's like a classic New World Order conspiracy guy that would teach, you know, teaching people about the NWO. If you go to the hilarious rational wiki, which is all about debunking conspiracy theories with as much hatred and vitriol as possible. <laughs> read about Alan Watt there. They make fun of him. I don't know a lot about him, but he, he was probably pretty based. I would think he died fairly recently, so, but plugging on, we have, so, we're going through this got, greatest hits. Of, quick. I got one more on Alan Watts. Uh, he he was very recently injected in the zeitgeist in the uh, the film Her, where the character falls in love with his PC, with his computer. And somewhere through that plot, he finds out that his computer is cheating on him with uh, with Alan Watts. And it's like this awkward moment, like he comes home and she's like, yeah, here's Alan Watts. And Alan Watts has got this suave, smart voice. And they're talking about universal ideals. They're like off onto this level that the human, the main character can't even come close to. She's like, you're not jealous, are you? And Alan's like kind of you can almost hear Alan Watts uh, pipe in his mouth laughing. So there's a jealousy human jealousy against somebody smarter than them that is not just Alan Watts, it's an Alan Watts computer. So I just wanted to mention that he was uh, kind of emasculating that character from her recently. So that's interesting. We're starting out with that because there is a castration uh, plot afoot. Hmm. Well, I'm also noticing how Alan Watts is wearing orange in this famous photo, just like the Buddhist monks would wear orange and the sun is orange. The, the generative power is the sacral chakra, the orange chakra. This episode is highly, highly uh, involved with the Kabbalistic sphere or Sephirot called Yasad, which is equivalent to the sacral chakra in the tree of life. So I find that interesting. I'm just noticing that orange. But yeah, let's continue through our little whirlwind tour of... <laughs> so-called outer space, which is part of the sacred timeline program and super faking gay where next we see Neil Armstrong is speaking and we get the the line one small step for man (laughs) reminding you that you're supposed to believe that some guys landed on a rock in the sky in this paper mache grade school project that traveled through a vacuum, landed on a moon, launched back off of it through the and came back to Earth through the atmosphere. So that's obviously the fake moon landing is a huge, humongous part of the sacred timeline, the sacral timeline, actually, since we're talking about the sacral chakra today. And then next you get Greta, <laughs> Greta Thunberg. How dare they? Of course, because that's part of the sacred timeline as well, that you're supposed to believe you're bad and you're killing the world with cow farts every time you eat a cheeseburger. I personally ate a cheeseburger tonight for lunch, and I don't think the world is any different. 
<laughs> I can't. I just have to laugh at like the Greta face. How dare you? I mean, this is the epitome of how dare you. And then we hear this chick named Malala Yousafzai. Yousafzai? I don't know how you say that. She was a Pakistani female education activist and the 2014 Nobel Peace Prize laureate at the age of 17. The world's youngest fake Nobel Peace Prize laureate. 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 <laughs> Her fame soared after a gunman shot her in the head in 2012, a big bad Taliban man when she was 15 years old and she survived. So she was apparently, you know, running her mouth about how women should have equal rights. I'm just kidding, guys. <laughs> and we're given her voice at the moment in the video montage of the Big Bang, a.k.a. reminding you that she got shot in the fucking head. Allegedly, but she survived. Allegedly. So her part in the sacred timeline programming of history is Taliban bad, woman oppressed, woman victim. You speak out, you get shot. And uh, she, of course, she claims that Barack Obama is her role model. That's why I grabbed this picture here. You know, the guy who won a Nobel Peace Prize himself for dropping drones on brown people, drone bombs, more than anybody. Also found it kind of interesting that Barack's TV daughter, maybe it's his real daughter, uh, adopted maybe. Her name is Malia, and this Pakistani female rights activist is Malala. So Barack's daughter, Malia, this woman who's a Peace Prize winner who idolizes Barack Obama is Malala. It's basically the same name. So here they are together. <laughs> There's so much going on here. Then we get Nelson Mandela. Of course, the Mandela effect. Wait, hold on, before, can, I got I got to weave on on Can I weave on uh, Obama real quick? <laughs> yeah, but just jump Obama, in when you got blowing to. shit up. No, but Yeah, but yeah. Obama blowing shit up. He ran out of bombs. Oh, bombs left. Um big bang. And this the is Nobel the big bang Peace moment. Prize was made Right. And the guy who made the Peace Prize made his empire on dynamite, blowing shit up. He faked his death in the, uh, the obituary, said, uh, like, the god of, of, of death and murder and destruction is finally gone. And he reads his own obituary. He's like, oh, fuck these motherfuckers. I'm coming back. Uh, because he didn't like the way people talked about him after he died. So he came back and then reinstituted the Nobel Peace Prize, which is literally the format for how, what they're really giving people money for with that award. It's pe people who can get away with doing horrible stuff, but keep the PR uh, to their own benefit. They keep the money coming in uh, while uh, on the down low, blowing shit up, causing horrible damage. That's really what the Nobel Peace Prize is. It comes from Oslo, Norway, which is the location where Edmund Munch had the scream, the moment of the scream. He's off the coast of Norway, which is the location where they blew up the, mid, the maelstrom. Nord Stream maelstrom was right off the coast of Edmund Munch's scream, which is the Aeon card. Uh, in that moment when Krakatoa sent seven streams of, of fumes around the earth, that is the headquarters. That's ground zero of the Nobel Peace Prize is where uh, Edwin Munch started the scream. And that should make you 
reconsider reality. You should have a, your uh, Nietzschean nihilistic moment with what I just said. Well, what you just you're talking about the Nobel Prize Peace Prize being about blowing shit up. It's definitely like 1984 doublespeak. War is peace. You know, hate is love. That type of deal. It remind. It makes me think of. I was having this conversation with wife Jennifer last night about the FBI and how the FBI is like people laundering instead of money laundering. You know, it, ostensibly it's the agency that's there to investigate and find who, where the bad guys are at, like how they're doing it, seal the cracks in the law so that people aren't getting through the, the fence. But instead, what I think it's actually for is to help the top players actually achieve their crimes. <laughs> you know, you might have some like low level analysts that are looking for the infractions to the law. But then at the top, they're like, oh, thank you for showing us where we were exposed. We'll we'll fix that now. So we have so much going on with government where it's like on the surface in the in the public, it's this is their objective. But in the private, it's the opposite. <laughs> I think that's real. But you're talking about like the Nietzschean yeah, questioning reality moment. And we're about to get there with Mandela. But go ahead. Right. Uh, I'm just going to put a little pin in the word prize. Uh, that's just now kind of coming to like, as we're mentioning it, I'm like, wait a second. Prize law is what uh, was launched in six, 1666. Pox on both your houses when they started the birth certificate. That's prize law. And there's a there's a Mozart of international trade. His name is uh, Hugh de Groot. Hugh De Groot. I am Groot. This is the guy who's been doing all the placental capture. And it is his Mozart masterpiece that puts us in international waters. Uh, so there's a uh, just a huge weave around the word prize that has to do with prize law that Hugh de Groot uh, put in place that is an umbrella catch-all, just like Groot when he saves them in their fall. Uh, I think that's a nod back to this Mozart of international law that the Nobel Peace Prize knows very well. You're learning me on that shit. Don't know about that. But Hugh is an interesting name. It's Bacchus's monogram, Hugh. But next we hear Nelson Mandela. And we're talking about controlling the timeline, altering the timeline. So, of course, they got to bring in Mandela. I'm going to be honest. I think most Mandelu effects are pretty retarded. And, you know, I'm not mad at you if you if you super believe it's a thing. I personally think that the Mandelu effect is all about making people believe that the shadowy elites can control time and alter reality. That being said, I am open, completely open to the idea that what we can, our consensus reality is more malleable to our beliefs than we know. I'm open to that idea, but I don't really buy the majority of Mendelu. <laughs> I think it's especially not how it's portrayed in conspiracy culture. But that being said, I thought, you know, this is one that I actually think <laughs> I'm affected by the fruit of the loom. Which one do you think is the real one? I would have told you it's the one on the left with the cornucopia, but. I guess it's supposedly Absolutely. always been the one on the right with no cornucopia, which doesn't even make sense. It's fruit of the loom. It should have a cornucopia there. Since we're talking about Kronos and corn, K-R-N, and the cornucopia, which is a symbol of, of Kronos, 
then I, you know, that's the one that I think is relevant to bring onto the the slideshow, the fruit of the loom. Cause you know, the loom, they also call like the loom is what they call the, uh, device in season two of Loki that is like weaving the strands of time. Right. So <laughs> there's lots yes. of the weaving of the fates, that idea back to our, our, uh, Pethro rune, fate and chance, the Norns, the weird, all of that. So the fruit of the loom Mandelu is nice. a weird one. Cause I totally remember having like underpants and white t-shirts that had the logo that has the, the cornucopia on it. I legit do remember that. Yeah, man. Um, the Mandela effect, I think it's crucial. I think it's super important. I'm so glad we have our, our soldiers out there uh, at, the, at the tip of the spear, keeping a sense of just how mutable the, the realm is. Uh, because I think a great amount of potential social engineering comes through this thread. And I'm with you, man. I love the Mandela effect for what it is. But I also uh, I would put a warning on that field of research to like go as far down as you can while re retaining every ounce of self-sovereignty and control and command over uh, over your own perception and sense of reality because that's really what you're risking here. And what I think uh, ultimately the hazard that we're seeing is this will play into the hands of false memory syndrome. It already has. It's already laid the, a horrible battlefield that's going to be really hard to navigate for some people when they start uh, being tested for their sense of what is right and wrong, what is and what isn't, who's right and who's not right, what is relative and what's not relative. All of that has been really muddied by the Mandela effect. And I, I, when I look at it, I'm constantly telling myself, OK, yeah, they might have changed that, but that doesn't make them God. That doesn't make them God. No, no, they can change this, but that doesn't make them God. And this goes hand in hand with uh, weather control. I'm always like, yeah, they can fuck with the weather, but that doesn't make them God. And I'm constantly reminding myself that this line of thinking leads to deifying the military. And I, I just, it's so hard not to uh, cross that threshold of like, yeah, they're playing God. They're playing God. Am I giving them credit? Am I telling them they're succeeding? Nope. Nope. They don't succeed. Uh, so yeah, you take it as far as you can, but don't, uh, yeah, don't let them play God. Don't let them plant false memories. Well, that's the sash that Renslayer wears the priestly sash that is also for military dictator, government leader officials, you know, deifying the military. That idea is in the show too. Okay, so then we see, I don't know what this is supposed to be, cool special effects. But while we're seeing this, we're, we hear a whole lot of music through this whole sequence. And in this part, we hear Fur Elise by Beethoven. I'm just going to play it while I talk. Everybody knows this song, right? This is like one of the most recognizable pieces of music in the world. <laughs> so... Fur Elise was uh, allegedly discovered and published 40 years after Beethoven's death. He's the composer who, by the way, who went deaf, but was still crushing. If again, all this is just the story. We don't know. 
<laughs> I honestly don't know. I'm going to kill the music now. But my point in bringing that up is how there's like endless speculation and argument about who was the Elise for for Elise was about to Beethoven. Maybe she existed. Maybe she was just a, a maybe it was just a title he made up. But imagine, just imagine all the thought energy that we evaporate on trying to wrap our heads around the mainstream historical narrative on things that might just be a total red herring to begin with or stuff that's going on in media today. Like that's black hole. See, we're seeing a black hole on the screen. A lot of these ideas are basically a black hole for your attention, for your intellect. We also hear in this part the uh, Tchaikovsky song uh, from Swan Lake, the finale song. It's pretty famous. I don't have it loaded up, but it's here. And Swan Lake, I don't know a lot about Swan Lake, so I can't comment much. But there is this part where the song plays at the end of the of of the uh, production where the two characters the the lovers of the play Odette and Siegfried well she flings herself into the lake and Siegfried follows her so it's like a a double suicide but the the love that they had breaks the enchantment and all of the swan maidens are freed from the curse and so are the spirits of Siegfried and Odette so there's like i think meant to be parallels here to this Loki episode, they're fl- they're flinging themselves into the void together, trying to break the curse of the Enchanter, who is the you know the big bad boss Kronos character. And then there's also the other recognizable song from this part that I thought was relevant was "Auld Lang Syne," which is a Scottish folk song, and it's traditionally sung on the last day of the year at midnight. So that's the Janus moment, you know, that's the going through the gate of the year. And ald means old, lang means long, and sign is sense in like folksy Scottish speech. So it's basically old, long sense, their way of saying time's gone by. So that's some of the music that we see in this scene that I felt was relevant. Yeah. Uh... So uh, remember, if from our last weave, we have uh, come out of the fall and we're moving fully into the winter seasons. Uh, so, yeah, we're at that terminus, uh, you know, PK uh, or no, 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 no. It was L, uh, uh, Luke, uh, L.C. King. He has a big thing about the terminus. Um, but uh, something that's hit me. Also, you mentioned the swan. Well. That's the song that they were playing with the th- Thurman uh, earlier in earlier episodes. They were playing the Swan song, and that is the Cygnus constellation. But uh, I'm quite. I and mean, is the Cygnus I, I around that. Capricorn, right here which with is Capricorn in the winter, moving into Aquarius? Pretty, pretty much. Yep, yep. So you can think of this as like a. We're coming in. This is uh, elections. This will be where the handoff and the inauguration happens. This is going to be Groundhog's Day. This is going to be a reading of auguries. Um, Groundhog's uh, 
day, February 2nd, is right there around the inauguration. And when I say inauguration, I'm talking about reading animal behavior to predict the future, but I'm also talking about the president taking your vote of offering so that they can uh, predict your future uh, decision-making, just like an animal. Um, and Chance, can you bring up the most recent in the telegram that I just sent to you? Uh, I, this was such a fascinating reveal. The last thing we said in the last demystifiers was, we're going from the fall into the winter. We're probably around the Fornax constellation, probably coming up on the Uradnus River here pretty soon. Uh, and sure enough, look what I find out. The great void, the super void of Uranus, is quantum entangled it's with Canis TC, the great void. Just yes, to be yes, I call it's, it Uranus. I say it. Yes, but it's basically the Jordan. It's also the Jordan. That's why I, I'm between two worlds all the time because I'm just reminding myself this is also the Jordan River. It's the same word in my eyes. I know it's said differently, um, but. This transition, this fjording, crossing over the fjord, wrestling with an angel all day so that all the Israelites could get to the other side. And then you get initiated. You get your magic new name because they fjorded to the other side. Well, this is fascinating because Eridanus is not close to Canis Venditisi. It doesn't fit my Gananga Gap nine-month cipher. What they're telling us is that this is a warp zone. Just like it's Super Mario Brothers, where you go into a tube over here and you pop up over here and it's not logical. There is some sort of uh, quantum entanglement entanglement between these two points in the in the heavens. And that is so fascinating because this is the scientist blee blah blah uh, uh, book cope language for what we said at the end of the last episode is we're, we're going from the fall into the winter. And here they're telling us there's a quantum entanglement that later on, when the plot rolls out, uh, they are reinforcing what NASA has said about these locations in the heavens. It's interesting that you're bringing this up because I mentioned the whole semen virilis thing. What that's actually in in more Hebrew or poetic language, it's the waters of Judah and the waters of Judah is talking about the waters that come out of the, the, as the source of life in the body of the parent. So it's either the seminal fluid or the amniotic fluid of the womb. And it's referred to in the Bible, say like in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and you have, it's, it's being talked about kind of in context or, or, around the idea of God is God speaking to the Jews in captivity and like, you know, that whole book Isaiah is about the prophecy of Cyrus, who is a, a type of Jesus or a type of Christ, a savior archetype, part of the cycle of the Nero's. And so that's, you know, the, the point of them being in, discouraged and in captivity it's the uncertainty of the future and the hard part of life on the sine wave so there's you know winter is that time right winter is that time and we see rivers or waters in the sky clock in the winter time and so i think there may be some some relation to this idea of the waters of judah but which is a an 80 in our gematra weave, which is the, the letter pay, which is the tower card letter 
So all that throwing a lot on the fire here. Some, something else I forgot to mention. There is a great deal. I learned so much in preparation, preparation that uh, well, it'll almost be a 50-50 list of how much we can fit in the four hours. Uh, but at this time of year, like if the sun were in February 2nd, let's say it was February 2nd today, there are meteors happening over near Bootes in the corresponding location to be at the other end of this uh, this correspondence of the, these two voids that are quantum entangled. So when the sun is over here, there's a show in uh, Buotes, um, which is just so fascinating that they're, they're just reinforcing the light show and the light cycles uh, and translating them into uh, the things of man. And then we, and then disseminating, Aiding them onto us uh, to just re- reinforce that scaffolding. Sky- oh, but I want to say this: this is amazing. When I learned this about uh, this interconnectivity, whatever quantum entangle, whatever you want to call it, it comports to my read of Perseus slaying Medusa. When Perseus slays Medusa, he has a, a regret, a reflectivity, and he has to go ask Athena, "What was that horse that flew out of her neck?" And her answer draws him back through the story to Buotes. Her answer takes him to the moment uh, that is correspondent to the other great void. And that's the moment when uh, Medusa was looking in the mirror and she found out she was pregnant. She didn't know that, but 2020 hindsight. So there's a going backwards and filling in the context retroactively in Perseus's story slaying Medusa that hash marks this cut of Pegasus coming out of the Euridnus River, flashing over to Boates in the sky. And that stood out to me when I was doing the story before I knew what NASA had to say about it. And so here is the cut mark. This is the cut markation. This is Cygnus. Delphinus is going to come up in a minute in the, in the tower. Here's Pegasus. This whole cut is pointing across the Zodiac to the Crator Cup, the Crator constellation. So right here is Hydra on top of Leo. That is basically the ingredients to give you the Yaldabaoth, the the lion-headed serpent god. That's Leo with Hydra uh, as a minor decant of him. Uh, So it's just amazing to me that Buotes over here, basically uh, in the, uh, the Great Diamond of the Fall, as this corresponding meteor shower, as we, if we were in February 2nd, if it was Groundhog's Day, if we were reading auguries, if we were running drills, there's actually a drill nebula. There's a, uh, a corkscrew. There's two corkscrew nebulas in uh, Uradnus. Uh, so running the drills, running the auguries, uh, even Terpsichore the Dancer is going to come into play uh, around the star card here with Aquarius. So just wanted to get everybody a little star map of where our mind is. I think of, okay, I think of Barack Obama because Pegasus is Barack, the horse that takes Muhammad to Mecca. Pegasus being Barack, Barack is also the Karab. Barack Obama is basically all the signs and symbols along this entire meridian. Crab, Leo, and uh, Capricorn, uh, Aquarius. This is all things Barack. It's amazing how many signs and symbols are packed into his name as a hyper sigil. And the nemesis, when he comes out, his first scene, he's going to be in a high priestess position 
but he's also under uh he's underneath a uh cyborium he's in a building in his big reveal well the cyborium is the chariot card so we're going to be taking the chariot card we're going to end up stacking it on the high priestess card and that's going to be the big reveal uh when we first see barack obama the big uh uh george floyd wannabe actor who is the nemesis of the whole story but i'm jumping way ahead <laughs> uh, i gotta say thanks to the super chatters rachel and brayden over on rockfin much appreciated y'all know i put a lot of time into this and you can also tip gabe who also does a lot of research and forethought go to cash app and send dollar sign slick dissident some support as well both both of us uh would love to be supported for the fun that we're having with all of you guys tonight i'm you brought up boates and i i don't have like the receipts on where it fits in astrotheologically to the the myth but i do know that matheson david matheson talks about loki in the norse mythology being boates quite a lot of that and you all you're talking about the uh the votive offering votive votive bv switch i mean votive is like a uh, a sacrifice or a burnt offering <laughs> you know when you go you're voting you're taking part in an occult ritual in so many ways not just a little bit not to mention this episode has a lot of parallels tons of parallels to adam and eve and the garden and genesis which is Botes and Virgo, Adam and Eve. Pretty sure that's where they fit into the sky clock as a story. So here we go. Getting back to our slides. The next thing after we've gone through all those sacred timeline greatest hits is we're now in like a DMT tunnel. We're flying through like DMT tunnels, what I would call this. I definitely can relate to this type of imagery. I've seen this before in my own blast offs. Uh, it's funny too, because this moment vision says, what is your vision from the Avengers films? Who's like an AI. And he's saying, what is grief? If not love persevering. And you know, that word persevering can easily be philologically flipped to be preserving. You know, we're talking about the preserver part of the uh trinity and we're about to see loki the preserver you know we're going through this tunnel and then we're going to get to him uh, our our hero our savior what i think is interesting is as we go through this dmt tunnel blasting off there's a breakthrough moment and the breakthrough moment you break out of this tunnel and we see it for what it is it's a big circle and this really made me think differently of the dmt experience actually because they say like blasting off breaking through those are some terms given to it but they also refer to the experiences going into inner space and like i myself have blasted off i've i've had the what you call breakthrough before back when i used to do this years ago and i've seen the big floating head in the void <laughs> in and, you know, I've been there. I've seen it. It's talked to me. It's it's told me the end of the story. It's the end of time, which is where we're at. We see this circle. It's circling the end of time, the citadel, the end of time. It's like a big trippy Saturn ring. So I think we're being shown that our experience of life is on this wheel or this ring, like a record, 
like an ecliptic or a zodiac, and that the end isn't really an end like a, a line. It's actually the center. The God of time is in the center of the wheel, not at any point on it, not at the beginning or the end, because circles don't have a beginning or an end. So we see this big rock hanging out here. Remember, we were talking about how rock was going to come into play and pe the Petro rune, which is basically Petra, meaning rock. We see uh, the show creators actually say that this is an asteroid that has a citadel carved into the rock. It's the rock that he who remains picked to build his house on. Like Matthew chapter seven, verse 24 through 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came, that's winter, and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So the foundation of this citadel at the end of time, we see is this big rock. Yasad is the foundation upon which God has built the world, according to Kabbalism. Yasad, Yad, Samek, Vav, Dalet, Y-S-V-D, or U-D, that's equivalent to 80. So we have the 80 of the pay coming back into play. The Yasad sphere of the Sephirot is the one right above Malkuth. So it's the second from the bottom. It, it serves, it's said to have served as a transmitter between the Sephirot above and the reality below. So the light of the upper Sephirot are said to gather in Yasad and are channeled to Malkuth below. In this manner, Yasad is associated with the sexual organs. The masculine Yasad collects the vital forces of the Sephirot above and transmits these creative and vital energies to the feminine Malkuth below. This is kind of like the idea of yin and yang, how the world, the container, the material is the yin, the feminine, and then your attention or your ego, that which observes and notices things, is the yang the masculine so they liken yasad to the engine room of creation that's the it's the sacral chakra of the tree i think yasad is the image making faculty of consciousness the fact that you close your eyes and images just spontaneously come into your mind like that what is that that's so you know we say thoughts manifest reality well there's this thing about thought that thoughts just come in and they come in as images quite frequently. Think about dreaming, especially. So that's the light of the upper, upper Sephirot trickling down into Yasad, your awareness, your, your consciousness. And then through that, it's transmitted down to Malkut and builds the world. And th this episode, we really need to start questioning <laughs> the idea of self because the tower is about the destruction or the removal of the limitations that the lower self puts on consciousness so that the higher self can expand and, and come into being and the enlightenment moment could come. So I wanted to bring up Kant, transcendental idealism, idealism referring to the philosophy that all is mind, everything is mental process. So 
because we have this question about self, like, you know, I'm going to get a little Alan Watts on you, but we consider ourselves to be the thing that, you know, if you really get trans like philosophical with it, you, you might consider yourself to be the, I am like the sense of self beyond all identifications. It's the part of you that notices it's the witness, right? But the problem with identifying the self as the witness itself <laughs> is that, well, what's noticing that something's noticing and what is it that's noticing that something is noticing that something is noticing? You see how we get into an infinite recursion here there. And this is the problem. This is one of the problems that Kant was trying to solve with his writing. So for Kant, the self is real. It's something real. It has a reality to it, but it is neither the appearance Yasad, right? The image making faculty of consciousness. It's neither the appearance nor the thing in itself that is appearing. But rather, the self has some third status. It's the tertium quid. <laughs> Appearances for Kant arise in space and time where these are respectively forms of outer and, and inner attending. Attending as in, you know, attention. Which is in, into, when it's inner attending, it's intuition. When it's outer attending, it's attention. The third status, the tertium quid, the self, its third status is explained by identifying the self with intellectual action that does not arise in the progression of attending and so is not appearance, but accompanies and unifies inner attending. And so accompanying, it progresses with that attending and it is therefore temporal, not a thing in itself. The distinction between the self or the subject and its thoughts is a distinction wholly within intellectual action. Only such a non-entitative view of the self is consistent with Kant's transcendental idealism. All right. So all of that's going to sound like, what the fuck are you talking about, Chance? I'm trying to help you out here. Okay. So the, the Kant is identifying the self with something temporal. All right. So in a way, this is like the idea of Brahma or Kronos, who gives birth to the egg that then births Fanes, the ego, <laughs> the, the demiurge that builds the entire world. All right. So the, the highest, most supreme and pure self Kant is relating to time that it's a process. Remember how Jung describes Abraxas? Abraxas is the, when you combine everything with its opposite, everything cancels itself out except for power or effectiveness because power or effectiveness cannot be canceled by lack of power or ineffectiveness. <clears throat> so that's that in whenever everything becomes nothing because it's all combined with itself, what's left is just power or just effectiveness. That's the process or the intellectual action that does not arise in the progression of attending or intuition. Okay. So think about, now we got to think about the self and time, like the highest, most true aspect of yourself as time. What does that mean? How we can help ourselves get through that is to start to delineate a distinction between types of time, because we only have this one word time. I bring this up a lot, but the Greeks actually have more than one word for time. You have Kronos, which is measured time measured out by the spin of the wheel, the 
Zodiac, the sun, sun is time. It's Kronos. It's, it's our consensus reality. That's the outer attention, right? That's our synchronization with each other. It's how we know to meet at two o'clock or seven o'clock or whatever. That's Kronos. But that is, uh, that's not the ultimate reality because our experience of the flow of that based on our process of intellectual action can vary. So there's not something real about it. <laughs> it does, you know, no matter what, 60 seconds doing something fun is going to feel different than 60 seconds doing something boring. So there's nothing real about it. That Kronos time is a, is conceptual. Okay. And then there's what's real about it is our consensus with each other. That effect, that is effectively real. But anyway, the other word the Greeks have for time is curios. And this word is subjective time. This is the time of how you change over time. This is the progression or development of your soul. So if you think about Kronos time as like a hamster wheel, a rat race, a repeating cycle, a record, the spinning, Curios is more of the linear time where from point A to point B, you get there and you're different when you get to point B. Whereas Kronos is more like everything stays the same forever. So hopefully this is making sense, but a lot of people in the world, slaves to Kronos, they do the same thing every day or week in and week out, and they themselves try really hard not to change. <laughs> so their soul or their self is going through very little intellectual action, which is this curios or this movement of the soul or the self progressing in an actual like learning and growing and expanding sense. So. This curios, this inner action or this intellectual action is what is the real self. It's the the way that we change over time as we act upon these inner forces of in, base, based on these inner forces of intuition and then these outer things that we're paying attention to. So I know it's just through a whole lot of philosophy at you, but this is. You know, what we got to think about it going forward in this is how this, the self is related to this idea of time. But which time is it? Is it the is it the Kronos time, the cycle, the eternal return that not, nothing really changes? Or is it the in, inner intellectual action, our, our action upon the inner and outer forces that change us and change them? That's the real time. That's the real self. Yes, sir. Yes. Excellent weave, Chance. Yeah, you just laid out a bunch of homework assignments for everybody. <laughs> so that made sense. Did I do justice uh, to Kant? Kant? Yeah, man. Yeah. Kant is a Kant. <laughs> it's a it's he is an immovable, implacable uh uh monolith of uh the bedrock of philosophy. And it does, it takes some real work to uh, first to uh, gain apprehension of what they're putting forward. And then you take it forward and test it. And then you have to find some cracks in the, in their work. Um, and Kant is, is essential. He is a real cornerstone. It's so cool that you started with uh, the Peter is the bedrock of the church upon which the church is built. Uh, and I see Kant as the Hierophant card. Um, uh, Kant and also Jung. Young was a Kantian. Uh, so they're both kind of correspond to that Hierophant card. And I'll say the reason why uh, 
because Nietzsche called Kant the Koenig, uh, the China man of Konigsberg. And if you look at the Thoth deck hierophant versus the writer weight, you will see Nietzsche's joke. You'll see the the Catholic writer weight hierophant has become the Chinaman of Konigsberg. If you look from one from one hierophant to the other, it's basically Nietzsche's joke dressed up onto a hierophant card. Um, uh, but yes, Kant is totally a cornerstone. Um, he's a number five uh, observer. But I'll say this. Reason why Kant is such a dangerous cornerstone. I just bumped into this recently, and it's so profound. It's going to inform me forever. I met somebody who he has taken and internalized Kant's uh, his maxim. Kant says, "Take the golden rule: do unto others only what you would have them do unto yourself." And he hyperbolizes it unto only act the way that you expect the rest of the world to act such that you see the goodness you expect in the world around you. So in a weird way, he takes the golden rule, but he expands it to everybody unconditionally. And right there is when we lost, I think we lost the 11th virtue of uh, um, being righteously indignant. Righteous indignation used to be a virtue, but I think Kant came and stifled all that. And now let me just say this. I met somebody, I'm not going to name names, who has taken an ideology onto themselves that I think is self-loathing and self-deprecating, self-demeaning. And then they're going out in the world and expecting the rest of the world to self-demean as well. And so they're actually taking Kant's advice. They're acting the way they want others to act. But that's only because they don't want other people to be so powerful. And so there's something, there's, uh, there's, uh, I wish I could say more details, but I don't want to I don't want to uh, rub anybody the wrong way. But I can see this person thinks they're being virtuous. They're taking on this high ideal and they're enacting it in their own life. But now they expect me to jump on this bandwagon that they're on about. And I'm like, nah, that's not I'm not I'm not down. Uh, So, yeah, it's fascinating when you see how far Kant can go and then it hits a wall where it has to be demolished and reassessed. So, yeah, it's funny that super deep. Everybody take they take it for granted because Kant is the bedrock of philosophy. (laughs) Yeah, dude. The uh, and the word Kant is also another word to to call the green language, the doublespeak, the language of the birds, (laughs) language of the bards. The French called it Kant. So that's the thing. I learned that from Dylan. Spirit world. Read the spirit world books, guys. If you want to know like how I'm able to piece things together, big part of my journey was spirit world. Still is. Still study that stuff. Thanks, Dylan. Go check it out. Audiobooks by me. Support both of us. Uh, the other thing about what you're just saying to add to that, you know, how the the self, the true self is this intellectual action upon the upon the attending aspect of the world or the outer world, the attention was just talking about this with wife, Jennifer yesterday too, how, you know, we see somebody in our life who all throughout our life, they've pretty much always been fucking up like drug addict or criminal or untrustworthy, unreliable. And, you know, your whole family, their, their family, maybe, and you know, that your whole family knows their history and then you hear through the grapevine or at a family gathering, like, oh, did you hear? 
so-and-so they're, they're out of jail. They've been clean for a month. They've been clean for two months. They haven't done drugs for that time. They've been holding down a job. And then, you know, some people are like, great, that's great. They're the treat others how you want to be treated. But then somebody else comes in with the righteous indignation, with the satanic inverse golden rule, treat others how you expect them to treat you. And they're like, oh, it's only a matter of time before they fuck up again. Only a matter of time. Better not trust them. Don't give them any leeway. <laughs> and so this is the this is the thing that Young is talking about. The opposing yays and nays of the unconscious as it expresses in the outer world. And we all have to make this choice in life a bunch of times. Like, are we going to give that person a yay or we're going to give them a nay? Are we going to hold space for them to evolve and change for them to go through their own process of the intellectual action where their self can experience the curious flow of time instead of being in the repetitive loop, the Kronos slavery? Or are we going to just, you know, see the worst in them, expect the worst of them, write them off and and then watch that happen, too? And it's really important that people understand that that choice matters. That choice matters because you've heard me talk about biofield tuning a lot. You've heard me talk about how the reason tuning works is because the universe has this principle that a coherent energy or coherent vibration entrains dissonant energy or dissonant vibration. So if you know, if somebody in your life is like, you know, spiraling all the time. They're very dissonant. And you yourself, you're you're generally coherent or you're more coherent than them. And then they're trying to rise. They're trying to get out of their dissonance. And you look at them and you're like, you won't change. You can't change. You have a stronger coherence to your energy. And you're in training their dissonant energy to your coherent idea, which is that you can't change. You're going to stay dissonant forever. Do you see my point? Like, this is really important. <laughs> Make you're, you're making a choice there. You're you're almost like choosing for them. You're becoming their. You're you're playing the master slave game, and I think that's why we had. I think that's why it was good to take righteous indignation out of the virtues. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> well, my uh, my complaint is they gave us justice in its place. Uh, I think we're wired. We're wired to have uh, righteous indignation, and they know that. So they've they've just basically made a gauntlet for uh, for drumming up your righteous indignation and then charging you for your inevitable re response. They turned. Well, it isn't into that justice, like misapplied? Just, uh, it's misapplied righteous, righteous indignation because, like, in the right moment, that's a great defense. <laughs> Someone's going to come at your family. Uh, you know, in a moment, you got to stop the tiger or whatever. Like, fuck you. There's a, like, that's a powerful energy. It's one of the most powerful feelings. It gives you a huge swell and a surge. But uh, in our world where there's not really any actual threats and we're having our, our nervous system reacting to general, mm -hmm. you know, white first world problem anxieties as if they're survival threats. It, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's a different game, but we got to carry on. We got to carry on. Rachel says, I'll say one more thing. Blessing and cursing. That's totally true. Nice. Nice. I'll say this. We know that righteous indignation is still under fire because they had to go and add the word self on the front of it. And then act as though by applying the word self, that makes it less than. So by adding self to the word righteous indignation, now it's even the worst thing. So here is the selfish. You can't be self full 
because that, that just does they don't eat it's selfish oh no don't be like yourself so the whole thing about the fighting of the self is in there in the recipe for sure but yeah hmm. that's wrong and that's this whole episode fighting with yourself <laughs> that's what this whole episode's about anyway we were talking about the rock that that Kronos built his citadel on. And I just wanted to bring up this structure, Petra in Jordan. Speaking of, uh, you know, Eridanus, the Jordan River, this is Petra in Jordan. Very, very ancient structure. And structures like this make me wonder about what people say regarding the golden age of Saturn. Maybe if this was the preferred building style of an ancient era, that has been mostly buried underground long since that question of the golden age of Saturn, that'll return. We'll return to that because as it's described by mystics and, and all that, it's, it was an, more of an anarchistic time. And that's kind of the question of this whole episode. Are we going to go back to that? Or are we going to stay in the, is it fascist or anarchistic? It's like, that's the dialectic you're getting in this episode. Uh, going forward, though, here's something really important to this whole weave. Okay, so on the left, we see the Tree of Life. And we're talking about the Tower card in this episode. The tower Between all of the ten spheres of the Tree of Life of Kabbalah, there's a tarot card that is correspondent to the pathway between each of these spheres. And what we get with this... The tower, it appears on the path between Netzach and Victory. I'm sorry, Netzach is Victory. Between Hod and Netzach. So it's right here, Hod, and right here, Netzach. This path travels on, or, or really kind of like above Yasad, the foundation. So all the Sephirotter linked were likened to different parts of the body and the tree itself to a homunculus or the Adam Cadmon. Netzach and Hod are likened to the two feet of a person, left and right. I I also, it, it doesn't quite make sense anatomically, so I don't know why they say that, but it has to do with the fact that these two forces, like the feeling and the thinking, Hod being the thinking, Netzach being the feeling, they bring you to your place of intention, and it's also like the base of the tower. So. It's foundational. Everything stands above it. So I see where the feet idea is. But Yasad below it is the generative organs. So, you know, maybe it's hanging pretty low if it's going below the feet. <laughs> Yasad's below Netzach and Hod. But to continue here, Hod, the, the left-hand side, is the Sephirot or sphere of Mercury. Interestingly enough, a Hod or a Hadi is a construction tool for carrying bricks in masonry. And Gemini, which is ruled by Mercury, Mercury being the symbol or the, the planet for the sphere of Hod, uh, Mercury, I'm sorry, Gemini, it has to do with the season of brick making. So I'm finding this connection to Hod very fascinating indeed. You actually see the way that this guy carries his Hod is super reminiscent of the Fool card. And what the like the fool with his knapsack on the stick, the Archangel Dude, of Hod, cool. isn't that a good dig? Archangel of Hod is uh, Archangel Michael. You remember Loki's flaming sword, 
There's that. <laughs> that was in the previous episode. In Lieber 70, in Lieber 777, Crowley associates Hod to Anubis, Thoth, Loki, Hermes, Mercury, etc. All of these characters. Now, the meaning of Hod is majesty, splendor, or glory. As a four in the Enneagram, the individualist, our, our Loki, his motivation is glory. So Hod fits him perfectly. He's the individualist who wants to be recognized for his majesty, his unique importance. He's the, the narcissist character. And this is the eighth Sephiroth. Hermes was called Lord Eight at Heliopolis. There's a lot to that. And then the other side of this pathway of the tower path is Natsak. Natsak is Venus. It refers to endurance, victory, and eternity. Now, Sylvie is the character representing this other side of the tower path. They're the two characters going up the tower in this episode. And Sylvie, she's characterized by her endurance, her withstanding of the long, painful path of trials to get to this moment. And that's exactly what Netsack communicates, the idea of long suffering, strength and patience unto completion. Like Jeremiah, chapter 15, verse 18. Why has my suffering, Netsack, been without end? Remember this this whole Lamentations, Book of Lamentations, Prophet Jeremiah thing going on thematically with this whole series. And Netzach being victory, well, you see in this episode that her only motivation is victory over the TVA. And to get that, she has to find whoever's at the top of it, the top of the tree, catch her. And there's also a an, an archangel associated with Netzach. You know, I can't help but think of nutsack also. I'm sorry, but we were talking about that SK word that equals 80 sack and the multitude within the sack, yeah. multitude of men. Yeah, nutsack. You know, I, I got to say the two the two separates that do that for me is the nutsack and the chokma. And wouldn't you know, the Leo card has a chokma. It's a lady. She's like choking the lion and she's holding a nutsack in the air. So there's like Nutsack Trokmais incorporated into the Leo, uh, the Thoth lust card. <laughs> totally. Um, but the, uh, <laughs> the Archangel, the Archangel Haniel is associated with the planet Venus and is thus the Archangel of the Sephiroth Nutsack. Haniel derives from the Hebrew Han meaning grace or favor or charm qualities associated with Venus. And then the suffix L, which is God, of course. Uh, but oddly enough, Haniel is equivalent to the Phoenician name Hannibal, Hannibal, which is Hannibal means God. I'm sorry, Baal. <laughs> Baal is gracious. <laughs> so all of this fits Sylvie's description in the show up to this point, especially how the adjustment or justice card is uh, related to this sphere of Netsack. She's the adjustment card of this series all the time, the sword and everything. Uh, nature's eternal endurance is in its constant adjusting and balancing. And so, you know, that's why nature always wins. Life finds a way, that whole idea. That's, and that's a right hand path thing. It's like the inevitability of of creation and growth equal to the inevitability of entropy and destruction. So we got to keep these two columns, this left hand and right hand path in mind as we go forward. I promise we're actually going to talk about 
stuff in this episode. I know we're an hour and a half in. <laughs> we're probably about a minute and a half into the actual episode itself in terms of the timeline on the show. Well, we got we got a lot of ideas to set up to go with this. <laughs> yeah, this is like the opening shot. <laughs> we're an hour and a half in. This is how we do it on Marvelous Demystifiers. We take we take the long arduous netsack path. Anyway, so okay, here we are. We're looking at the establishing shot. We're seeing the Citadel at the end of time. There's a couple of words I want to throw into the mix here that equal 80, which is that pay, that letter pay with the tower card. First of all, you have uh Ayen Yad, which is uh basically transliterates to AI. And that's a heap or a ruin. And then the other word that equals 80 is mem mem or mem and mem final. Obviously, though, the, the heap or the ruin ruin idea, this is like a <laughs> repeatedly coming up in the series. But this is definitely we're, we're on a heap right here. This is like a, this tower has a lot of ruin aspects to it. But this other word is more fascinating this mem mem it's i don't know that it's it's not biblical but it's something that's referenced in the hebrew scripture sefer seferat and if we can take an approximation from arabic of the closest that we can get to this mem mem it would be something that's livid which livid i know we use the word livid in a different way in our common parlance but what it really means what I really mean, livid is something that is a dead, grayish blue lead color. Lead is the metal of Saturn. And all of this area in the tower somewhat, but especially before they get in all outside of it, there's this big theme of things being like this grayish blue color. It's there. That's definitely there. You know, and the other thing that I find interesting about M.M., which mem is 40, so two M's is 80, is that when you put something in your mouth and it tastes good, what do you say? Mmm. <laughs> mmm. Now, how do you recount your memories? How do you drink water? You do that with the pay, totally. the mouth? All of that. Same, and same thing with... Uh... Uh, the tower is number seven is an epicure or an enthusiast with the shadow of glutton. So when you eat something, when you take in information, you go, hmm. And it's almost like you're buzzing yourself to remember. That's pretty cool. I love that. It's almost like the sound of 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 retroflection. You know, hmm, let me think. It's almost the sound of looking backwards. That's great. Is the sound of the it, which is the sound of. Mem, memory, water, reflection, going backwards. That's great. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, shout out PK for hooking me up with that Hebrew Gematria book. It is just the most rewarding reference ever. <laughs> and yeah, this baby. has been, this this series has been my time to finally start to get a grasp on the Hebrew letters without having to constantly look up what's what. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm as good at it as like the Greek alphabet, but I'm getting there. I will continue to say, though, and hold fast that the Hebrew alphabet is terrible. So the worst alphabet ever It all like the stuff looks the same to each other. Uh, it's 
on purpose confusing. <laughs> I think it's on purpose confusing and horrible. <laughs> I don't think it was ever real. Uh, I think it was always a cipher, priestly language, secret gatekeeper language, and it's just sort of been it's made this, a yeah, profane this, thing since then. It's a- it's so funny. And then as soon as you start asking questions, like everybody you ask starts fighting with each other. <laughs> it's like set up like upon any uh, uh, scrutiny, it just starts fighting and and being confusing. And they're like, oh, yeah, but you forgot about Yiddish. And you're like, oh, my God, how many languages? It's good. But yeah, it's totally Yiddish. muddled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, buddy. Uh, could, could you pop up the... Uh, Oh, nice. Okay. After this, I got a graphic I sent you, but yeah, you're seeing what okay, I'm the, seeing. Let's, let's do, uh, do it. Oh, really? Okay. So I, I circled the top of the tower where the light is. This is the eye of Providence, the light. And I think the light at the top of the tower is the sacred fire. So there's this thing we talked about last episode, how the ancient mystery tradition like it was especially profoundly evident in what we know about Persia and Mithraism. They had this idea of the sacred fire, which was fire from the sun and it never goes out. Uh, it's, you know, they, they were given it by the sun God and the priests keep the fire, tend to the fire in their in the temple, which is often a tower. The fire is at the top of a tower. Now, the other thing about this sacred fire is when I've found references to God being a fire, they describe it actually more as a liquid flame. So it's like the traits of water and fire merging. And the only thing in reality that I know of that fits that description is lightning, electricity. So this is the lightning struck tower. This is the lightning at the top of the tower, electricity being the manifestation of God. Now, also on this slide, you have the top of the the tower card has this eye and the top of the pyramid of the back of the dollar bill, that Masonic seal. It's got the eye of Providence at the top of a tower of sorts. And it says Novos Ordo Seclorum, New World Order. It actually says says, Anuit Coeptis, which is he favors our work, you know, the New World Order. And... I I know it's a little stretchy whenever you got to go around to a different cipher. I typically like to stick with septenary, but we're talking about a phrase in Latin. So I don't think the English septenary cuts it for trying to analyze that. But I did find that Novos Ordo Seclorum in the Chaldean Gematria is 80, which is the number of our card, this tower card. Uh, I think that that's got to be, it's got to be a thing. I mean, even think about the eye and the mouth. They have a similar shape, as do, as does the generative organ of the female, <laughs> the vagina. It's like this. It's the mandorla. It's the vesica pieces. It's the <laughs> sacred geometry shape of two circles overlapping through which the portal or the third thing, the tertium quid, is created, being the self that is born out of the intuition, inner world uh, attending and the uh, attention to the outer world. That attending, the two attendings Kant talks about. Okay, so you want me to talk about something? Uh, you want me to bring up something from your Telegram message? Is that right? Yeah, buddy. Okay, here we go. 
<laughs> what do you got for us? Can you, am I coming through? I'm getting a little nice. You're good. So uh, as, as soon as I saw this, uh, this castle on the skyline, uh, I, inst- I right away, my mind was drawn to La Reine La Chateau uh, because of that prominent tower, uh, somewhat iconic. And it's not an exact perfect fit, uh, but what is a confirmation for me, if you look uh, on this image, you can see that there's actually a greenhouse running along the, uh, the wall to the left side of the tower there. There's a greenhouse structure in the Loki series. That greenhouse corresponds to the greenhouse that is on the castle at Lorin La Chateau. And you can kind of see it. It's a it's a it's an iffy image, but you can make out the greenhouse on the bottom left there. And that is part of the story of Lorin La Chateau. I think that they were um I think they were trying to formulate the uh disease. I think this was the original uh CDC. I think Lorin La Chateau was a, a CDC uh and that's part of their holy grail. And not just disease, but like poisons, drugs, cures, all that. Um, and so La Reine La Chateau is, uh, is going to be on my mind because this is one of the, uh, the granddaddies of all conspiracy of history. Like if you're into conspiratorial history, bump into the Holy Grail mystery a thousand different ways, you probably didn't even know it. Uh, uh, it kind of is very all-encompassing. So it's almost a safe bet that something's going to be a hit. But sure enough, guys, I found so much going on here. I think the Loki, the directors of the series are holding true to their roots because this is the Merovingian mythos brought to you by the Marvel Avenger series. It's basically they're just staying true to their roots. You know, this is the Merovingians keeping the the Holy Grail mythos uh, psychically fused uh, to the anchors of the symbols of our mind. So this symbol and the uh, Merovingians are their bloodline comes from their bloodline. The Merovingian bloodline comes from a snake legged sea monster. uh, Ophiuchus Abraxas figure in their in their lore. Yes, yes. Yes, I think that's so important. I think the difference between the Merovingians, which were more uh, uh, French German, um, I think that they psychologically find it more valuable to uh, fuse language with the sea creatures. They, uh, the scare tactics are attached to the sea monsters, and it's very subtly seeded throughout our language. I got quite a few examples of that, but that is fascinating because Merovingians say that they're related to Neptunian bloodlines, let's say. And it is also true that the language uses sea monsters to keep people in line, uh, having much to do with the emergency sea urchin of the artistic rendition of what a germ looks like the germ warfare is uh actually inseminating our thoughts but okay so on the opening of the great pyramid of giza which does attach to the Lorin la chateau mysteries a hundred thousand ways is this this glyph and chance if you were forced to read that in english what word does that look like to you that strange collection of symbols doesn't that look like a word 
Well, I see a you V. You had to make the, that English word. So that V could be a Greek N. So it's either V or an N. V, <laughs> and then it looks like a Teth. And it looks like an maybe an E. Nice. And, and then I'm not yeah. sure what I'd make of the last one. So... The last one is really, really weird. What are so you, what I are you see, thinking? What do you make of it? Just in, just in English, just looking at it like, like a total, you know, farmhand out of the, out of the sticks. I'd come in here. I'd say void. This says V O I D <laughs> like void. Is it like avoid this place? <laughs> mm, interesting. Um, that's not what it says. That That is not what it says, but that's what my eye catches. And this is at the entrance of Khufu, right? Now, the reason I'm talking about it is because Buotes is a great void and the Eridanus River also has a super void. And they're telling us that they are a gateway to one another. And so I'm just putting this, uh, this sign on the threshold of this sacred location in correspondence to this building that does weave to the pyramids but here's something that comes to my mind with all of this. Before you could go into the Pythagorean temple, there was a, a, a phrase above the temple at the gates. And it was, let no one enter here who does not have mastery over geometry. That is a double negative. I think there's a code going on here. A, a lot of people would read that sign and be like, oh, I don't have my certificate. And they would turn around and walk away. That's not how the sign is it telling you you got to bounce off and go away. It's telling you by enter. It's a double negative. So that is the void that's speaking in two directions simultaneously. It opens up a portal of irony for you to self-initiate and take it further. And so by entering here, you are now having command over geometry. It's by presencing this space, you will gain geometry and that's what the negative of of that uh entryway is actually telling you by going any further you are automatically allowing the information of geometry to baptize you so that now you know just by being here and if you don't know now you know so yeah this void and these double negatives of cognitive dissonance uh, speaking in two directions i think there's something magical going on here uh, for those in the know, and I'm just getting a hold of it, this sense of irony. I'm, when I sense irony, I sense the, the presence of the masters. And that's what I think is happening. When you go through the gateway, uh, you are gaining affluence over geometry. Uh, so, yeah, that was, that was just kind of my weave. Uh, oh, can you go one more picture before, Chance? Uh, I guess that I sent you uh, the with the statue on it. Because as I looked through the mysteries of the Holy Grail, the mysteries of Lorin Le Chateau, because we have a character named Lorin Slayer, and that's one of our initiations to tell us to look deeper. Buddy, this is Asmodeus. We are looking at the statue of lust. This is the infernal spirit of lust, whose name is Asmodeus. A very, very, uh, you could say this is probably the highest profile of the demons. Like Lucifer and Satan, yeah, whatever. 
they're, you know, they get, they get all the flack, but this guy right here, he has a, he has some very unique characteristics to him, but uh, Asmodeus is a statue in La Reine Le Chateau. And do you recognize the robe, the garment that this demon is wearing? That's from the episode on the last demystifiers. Whoa, you're right. That is that is the exact color of the blanket that Loki seduced his animus, his sister wife. <laughs> he seduced her using this exact blanket of initiation. That placental convergence scene was totally a hailing to uh, Lorraine La Chateau. Uh, in in the spirit of lustfulness. Um, but there's something a little bit off about this. Again, I keep bringing up the incest aspect that, that there's no real lust here. Now, it's, it's misplaced. Something seems misplaced about uh, putting anything sexual between Sylvie and Loki. For me, I don't know. Do you feel the same way at all? I feel the same way. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard like accounts of people that got into Thelema where, which is Crowley's system where they met in real life. They met their yes. anima or animus. They actually met somebody who was the physical real world personification of their inner other gender, you know, inner spirit. And there's usually like sexual tension in these stories, but it's more of like a threshold experience where they're get they get keys that help them on their way into some other greater next phase of their life. But hey, Jenny pointed this out in the chat, and I think this is a great time to bring it up. That remember back in the first episode of the show, we saw this French cathedral. And in it was the stained glass. And we didn't really talk about it back then. Show I don't think, but he's, he's standing on the, this devil is standing on the egg, standing on the egg that we're going to see so many of these ion Kronos characters standing on in their statues and such. So anyway, you're right. There's not really, it's not a sexual relationship, but the seducing of the anima, <laughs> that's a thelemic thing. I'll just say that. Like you're supposed to meet and yes. and work with your holy guardian angel, and they're like each other's version of that in the thelema system. Right. Yes. And and I oftentimes these things that make me uncomfortable, I get the sense that that's designed to hide something more profound. And so uh, I I always brush up on it and I always say something about it. And it's hard not to ignore it because somebody else might come down this thought trail and be like, wait a second. He overlooked the incest aspect. So I just got to say it because it, it does seem there. But Jen, good find on this uh, picture, having forecasted, having uh, uh, foreshadowed this lust Asmodeus aspect. Uh, can you bring up the next one I fired up? Because this sent me on a little on a little rabbit trail. And if anybody wants to kind of pick up where I left off. I'm excited about this because this touches on Tracy's work. And uh, recently some little, some little spirits and uh, potential well, nods. Let and me comment on Asmodeus real quick. By way. Before you get into it, I just want to comment on Asmodeus being the king of the demons. 
this is a highly misunderstood idea, but if you go pick up this book or find like an archive.org copy, The Origin of Pagan Idolatry by George Faber, there's a lot of good explanation of what it means to be the king of the demons. And it's not what people think. It's not like a, you know, Satan ruling over pandemonium and hell thing per se. It's actually referring to that idea that the demon realm is the dead human spirits. And the king of the demons is Mercury Hermes, who's the guide to the manes, the the spirits of the dead called the manes. And the, so like that's, you know, Jesus descending into hell moment after the crucifixion or during the three days dead and freeing the captives from hell or whatever. That's because Jesus is the king of the demons. <laughs> so Asmo Deus, that's AS or ES, that's the fire, you know, and then O is. Or I don't know, I'm, I'm just on the fly here, but like we're looking at the, the God of fire, you know, the God of fire and the God of the things that relate to the letter O, Othala, inheritance, all of that, the, the cycle. Anyway, so Asmodeus is not what people think, you know, Christianity really demonized the demons and I really fouled up. Like if the Greeks fouled up the system, then the, the next wave, the Vatican just took it even way further off the deep end into complete misunderstanding of what the philosophy was supposed to be about. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my Enneagram makes really good sense of it. You know, the, the controller, uh, you know, we, we need uh, something to explain rape in this world. You know, rape has to fall into some kind of, so that oh, goes to the number eight, the, the, the number eight controller personality type. So yeah, uh, lust is the shadow of an eight personality type and lust's infernal name is Asmodeus. Now, what kind of gets me chance is um, it, there, there are three different books to rearrange the seven deadly sins on my Enneagram. And I chose the most popular one uh, and the most the one that was true, the what seemed the most true. There is one other book out there that actually puts Asmodeus as number nine, as uh, puts his name, associates his name with sloth. And sloth seems to be like the king because he's the, you know, the ultimate number. So in some people's demonic pantheon, they do associate Asmodeus with number nine. And this is the ninth card is the hermit card, which is a, like a, a hand in a glove for the color scheme. And so this is telling me exactly which demonic pantheon Marvel is working with. And it's not exactly a fit to mine, but I do know the uh, the authorship to follow uh, to get into their their infernal uh, mind space. <laughs> but you can see it, can't you, that the red of the tongue is the lacquer that red ochre or whatever that uh, the Vikings used to use for sunscreen, they say, is that red tongue versus against the green. And then even the yellow band, that yellow strip down the middle of the hermit card, that is the waistband of this Asmodeus statue right here. And then Helena Blavatsky was wearing the exact same color with the exact same gold trim uh, in her, uh, her self-portrait 
which I rarely do see in color. This is actually the co- the picture on her wiki page. Chance, can you zoom in on her forehead really close? This is her official portrait. I think she has a south node lunar standstill sign etched on her forehead. I think it's subliminally imprinted there. There's a, a upside down horseshoe on her forehead. Do you see her her hair brackets, her little loops on her hair, her tiara she's wearing? That matches these weird glyphs uh, on Asmodeus's head. I think that's actually uh, probably some uh, some yod. Might have a, a lambda yod yod or something in his hair. Do you see his hair curls? They match her hair brace. So yeah, also her blue eyes, there's a, the noon blue apples are part of the, uh, the Lorraine Le Chateau mystery. So the noon blue apples are her eyes, also the eyes of the statue. It's, it's amazing how, how much consistency is right here. I'm going to take us into yeah, it. Uh, a lot of this, I just, I want to give, yeah, I want to give thanks for Tracy. Uh, you know, some of, uh, Tracy energy is definitely guided a lot of these discoveries. So I just want to give thanks to the ancestors. I can agree. Actually, I, I hit up uh money grows on the tree of knowledge today by Tracy Twyman. So <laughs> give thanks. Yeah. <laughs> it comes in. It came into my preparations as well. Nice. Can you go back to that graphic? I want to say one more thing that this is really How neat. This is a, <laughs> One sec. The face of Asmodeus, this statue, is based on Da Vinci's uh, drawings. Da Vinci has a specific sketch. If you, if anybody goes down this rabbit hole, it's very fascinating. But that face is like, like some kind of painful orgasm of rage. I don't know. But Da Vinci sketched this face many times, and other people have emulated it. And if you look close at the cover of Blavatsky's artwork here, it's the same face that this uh, Cersei priestess is making the same face as well. Also, her hands are in the same position of the Asmodeus statue. Uh, so yeah, all things Lorraine La Chateau and this Asmodeus statue are uh, have been inserted into the mythology of Loki officially as of the last episode. And now I'll never see that blanket uh, without thinking of the Lorraine La Chateau mystery. Uh, they're totally nodding to one because it, the last episode started on Oak Island. And here's the ochre of the ogre of the tan, whatever the uh, tanning lotion that the Vikings used to wear is now on this infernal Asmodeus statue at Lorraine Le Chateau that correlates to Oak Island. Man, you're putting together like the, these are major weaves right here. <laughs> These are the connections that only slick dissonant brings to the table. I'm glad that you're getting the Oak Island brought back and that, that Asmodeus helps us tag Oak Island that, you know, otherwise might have just sort of fallen by the wayside as a singular moment. I appreciate especially Jen reminding us of that same glass that we're able to see the you know, the full circle moments or the way things connect back and all the way through this huge tapestry that is the series. It's cool too. How many people in the chat probably never even watched this series, but 
they've been along for this whole ride. It speaks to the power that is laid up in this symbolism that we can expose, explore, share, learn about together. You know, I, I, what I like about this doing this is I learn so much, you know, there's a huge amount, a constellation of, of riches and treasures of things that I'm aware of, but to be aware of something is not quite the same as knowing it, or there's always deeper levels that you can know a thing and doing these preparations, presentations, I'm finding things that I'm aware of and connecting them to, to other things that I'm aware of and forging new connections. And those links are the chains upon which memory is accessed, controlled, brought up, summoned. So in a way, it's like I'm learning what I am aware of in a more deep level by getting to do this. So I, I look at that as like a point in the column for why this is valuable for me as an individual, for you guys to listen or to do this type of thing yourself, whenever, whenever you're getting into a, a series or a movie to take the symbolic sledgehammer to it and see what shakes out of that tree as you, you go through frame by frame, like I, I tend to do with this. Although I will admit I had to speed up my analysis a little a bit in the second half of this, which is why I'm actually considering making this final a two-parter because we're about 20 slides into my 90 slides. I actually condensed the, <laughs> the latter, the latter half of the episode. I, I could have been more thorough, but it was already spiraling out of control. So maybe we do, have to, which is insane. It's like 35 minutes of content. We could probably squeeze six hours or more out of it. I'm down though. So we'll see what happens. I think everybody here is down. Uh, I'm going to carry us forward though. Cause this, this is, Oh, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I just want to say I'm totally with you. Uh, I think what we're doing is building uh, these are memory palaces. You know, I've been using the Zodiac for my memory palace for a long time. And at this point, it is it's the library of Alexandria. Uh, and uh, that is the technique of Giordano Bruno. And I actually had read that a long time ago. I had stored it in the database. And now here I am, like walking in his path and I'm looking back at myself and I'm being like, I'm like doing all Giordano Bruno stuff. So I got to go back and I look at him and sure enough, that's what we've been doing, man. We've been building memory palaces. I think we learned how to from the encyclopedists who put information in alphabetical order, which in and of itself is a tower. Uh, our culture is a memory palace and we're just filling in the blanks. It's about memory. It's not about learning. We're remembering. But yeah, let's move on. Yeah, the Zodiac is the memory palace. That's the whole point of the mythology. Before things were written down, it was all about being able to remember it. That's totally true. But we can use these pop culture stories like Loki as the memory palace. And when you realize that everything is everything and that <laughs> when something comes through the imagination portal, it's going to follow this pattern, then kind of everything becomes the memory palace. And the more connections you make, the more strong your memory becomes. It's totally true. Okay. So can you, can you pop up that, can you pop up that, that one graphic that I just sent you? I just want people to see it. We don't have to talk about it, but this is my Giordano Bruno is the lover's card, his statuary in La, uh, La Piazza dei Fiori, the place where he burnt. 50 years before they burned him, they burnt a bunch of books. Now there's a statue of him there holding a book. I think that the lover's card encodes his statue dropping the book to the ground. 
because he's a master of memory. He doesn't need the book anymore. The book can go to, down to the ground. He can drop it on the earth. And if you look very closely, there's a shadow of a book at the foot of this statue who's got his hands open wide. Uh, so this is my Giordano Bruno memory palace encode from the lover's card, which related to Sophie and Loki early on when they were teaming up. So the memory palace thing is about to come into play as they are in the tower and they're about to see it from the inside and all the uh, fun acquisitions and toys that the master has uh, acquired. Kyle thinks we should encore this and do a two-parter. All right, I'm into it. If we're going to do a two-parter, we'll probably take this to about about the three-hour mark-ish and we'll just meander through this as however we want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. We'll just pop it. Right. We'll pop into That's it on awesome. Wednesday. We'll we'll take it up on Wednesday. Uh, awesome, because this there's it's so fucking juicy. Like let's squeeze all of the juice out of it we can get. It, it's incredible what's there. Oh yeah, I just asked the wifey to make me a tea. You can <laughs> take my uh, cup out of here if you want. Use the same cup. No old world Mac Mac. I'm not battling strep. I'm battling phlegm. Not nothing. No big deal. It's not really a battle. I just like, you know, when I got to talk a lot, I like this throat comfort tea. It's good stuff. Thank you, darling. Okay, so this actually, speaking of wifey Jenny G, this next weave I'm about to lay down is high, is totally inspired by something she put me onto. So this is, this is going to cut, cut through the whole episode in a few different places. But here we have... They're standing at the base of this tower. They're at the door. If you notice that in the design of this architecture, there's this jagged yellow to it. It totally resembles the lightning bolt of the lightning struck tower. Now, we know Mars is the planet of the tower card. And the metal for Mars is iron, which looks dark gray or black like this. And all of this structure is seemingly carved out of one giant piece of iron, which... Wouldn't that keep the Fae away? You know, wouldn't that keep the, the tricksters away? That's what he who remains is want to control everything, wants to keep the chaos at bay. So I think that this, this design of this tower looks a lot like how gold veins appear in iron. And this is the statement that Jen put me to. It's uh, gold rides an iron horse. It's a saying of gold prospectors. And... You see what I'm talking about, Gabe? You totally see this gold veins idea coming out of the tower here? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. So yes, sir, I sure do. Th this takes us this takes us so far. All right. Next slide here. All right. So this is Sod Yod. Now, if you remember, we talked about Yesod, the sacral, uh, this that's the sacral sphere of the, the Kabbalistic tree of life in Yasad equaling 80. But if you flip that around and you put Sad before Yad, you have another word that equals 80, but it's the, <laughs> the secret. Sad is secret. It's the secret of Yad. So we're going to be asking this question repeatedly. What is the secret of Yad? We'll come back to this question throughout our weave. But first of all, you know, like the letter pay for the tower, the letter, the Sad Yad is described in, in the Hebrew mysticism is the philosophical gold. 
that's the gold that you ingest that goes in and you uh, break it down, down in the, in the foundation, the Yasad. And then it goes up, the prana of it goes up to power the third eye portal, which is the portal to God, the eye at the top of the tower. The eye of Shiva, the third eye, that which destroys the destroyer. What does it destroy? It destroys illusion, which is also what the adjustment card is about. It's adding each thing to its opposite. So how is it adding each thing to its opposite? <laughs> You're adding the Sad Yad to the Yasad, the philosophical gold, Sad Yad, to Yasad, the foundation. That's the union of opposites. Just like the idea of, you know, what alchemy teaches on uh, Yasad also being the generative organs, aka the sacral chakra, consider how that zone of your body is governed or the, the, the stomach, you know, where you, where things go when you ingest them is also governed by the sacral. So if you got something wrong with your sexual creative energy, it can affect the stomach or it can affect like the genitals. It can affect a lot of stuff. <laughs> Trust me. I'm a biofield tuner. I, I deal with it all the time. Uh, so in, ingesting, ingesting the sad yad, the philosophical gold, it's assimilated into the yasad. And becomes prana that goes up to power the third eye. The third eye and the sacral chakra are as above, so below reflections of each other. One is the creative vision, the imagination. The other is the creative energy or force that manifests reality. Yasad is where our image-making faculty of consciousness, the third eye, is able to, in the emanation sense, go down and manifest or can, you know, alter what manifests in the physical reality, Mount Kuth below. On the image of the left here is how the Philosopher's Stone is depicted in Harry Potter. So why, why am I showing you that? Well, it looks like red mercury, dude. Don't you think it looks like red mercury? This Philosopher's Stone from Harry Potter. And there's a lot of researchers... Totally. Why I have this image on the right, there's lots of, I'm not an expert on this, but there's a lot of researchers who think that the old world architecture, aka Antiquitech, was powered in some manner using red mercury at the top of the tower to harness atmospheric electricity, giving like God level, you know, free energy, abundance energy to society. And I think that when they're showing us this gold riding the iron horse and the whole metaphor of the tower here, then the eye at the top of the tower, the light at the top of the tower. I think there's hit like some, the gold that's riding the iron horse in this episode is, and in pop culture in general, might be this sneaky antiquitech free energy, red mercury thing. There's so much to it. Like, you know, in the lore about red mercury, that of course it's said to be like pseudoscience or fake or whatever by the mainstream. But it's supposedly something that <laughs> is like nuclear material, which I know that's bogus. I'm sure that's totally bogus. It has to do with like nuclear bombs. Uh, but they say red mercury has no reflection or that. <laughs> and that's the weird thing. They say that the red has no reflection, but the mercury, like if you put it in front of a mirror, all you see is mercury in the mirror and the red doesn't reflect. 
So why is that? You know, I, I don't know if that's even true. Whoa. They also claim that it's repelled by garlic. But when you consider how mercury was used to make mirrors back in the day, it's very interesting. You know, the whole lover's idea, mercury ruling Gemini, the twins, the mirror, uh, and this, this mirror between the third eye and the sacral chakra. Wow. Uh, and how all this is sort of wrapped up in the Sad Yad, the secret of Yad. It's one of the things wrapped up in the Sad Yad. And oh, oh, and MS is right. Mercury is wow, extracted from cinnabar and cinnabar is red. And like in uh, Chinese mysticism and Taoism, yes. they call the Dantian, which is like your sacral center, the furnace of the body. They call that the cinnabar field or field of elixir and the philosopher's stone. They call the substance that it produces that grants eternal life. They call it elixir. So. You know, when you study yes. alchemy symbolism, that's one of the huge syncretic links between East and West traditions where you can see, OK, this is either all coming from the same place or it's something that exists in nature and is discoverable or both. Well, it could be both. Yeah, man. And isn't it fascinating that that uh, the Dantian is the placental scar, you know, uh, that is the reminder uh, and it's so fascinating, uh, you know, coming through that uh, money grows on the tree of knowledge. Uh, there is that the, something I was plugging in with her alchemical uh, discoveries was the potential of the placenta coming into into those recipes. It's very fascinating potentials. Um, and then uh, ever since I learned that sad means secret. Uh, it it uh, informed a lot of what I thought I knew around like Marquis du Sade. Marquis du Sade was locked up in the Bastille. He was in a, a sacred tower. Uh, and uh, also just a, almost the same generation, maybe 30 years before, uh, Voltaire was in the same Bastille, the same tower, where he gave himself the name Voltaire. He had a... Uh, a Voltaire, it's like lightning in the sky. Voltaire, lightning in the he, top of the tower. And when he came out, he basically spent the rest of his name, uh, the rest of his life with the name Tower Card. I'm quite sure that the Tower Card is an honor, uh, honorific to Voltaire uh, because of his poem around the Lisbon disasters. Uh, but yeah, Voltaire is uh, the Tower Card for sure and he had the he had this alchemical uh quintessence figured out he knew the sod he knew the secret of the sod and then one more thing sodomy right well isn't it funny that alistair crowley author of this card deck said magic's in the butt the magic's in the butt and i think the answer the seek the the discover the reveal to that i should make people learn it the hard way i should give it away for free but the secret to that is of course you're afraid of your ass. You'll you can't see it. You can't find it. It chases you everywhere you go. It's your shadow. If you, anything that comes out of it is poison. It is this horrible curse that you that's unknowable in any reference to it. Anybody who implies that they have better command over it than you do makes you pucker up. And this infernal is demonic smells come from it. It's so funny. It's so funny. Yeah, and it's talking back. It's talking back at you, right? Back. It's behind you. But <laughs> this is uh, 543210 is fight for threat to one's 
hero, <laughs> your hero is your zero. It's your void. It's your absence. It's the thing you You'll never know. It's the thing you'll never, you don't want to find it. You don't want to know it. Uh, and you use uh, uh, excessive hygiene to ignore it. You go out of your way. This is libidinal. This is sublimation. This is the secret of secrets is what we hide are the things that we are. If you're healthy, you are repulsed by it. And so by being healthy, you are laying camouflage for a great amount of information to be tucked in your prison wallet. Whether, sometimes whether you know it or not. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just move us past that point. I thought, <laughs> okay. All right. Actually, no, I'm going to talk about it. So, cause we're, we're taking the two parter. So <laughs> thought I had more from the prison. Well, uh, Owen, Owen Benjamin has this bit recently where he's talking about how liars operate and like how really uh, accomplished liars operate. And it's very interesting to consider this in the idea of the memory palace as well, that you're just bringing up. So his take, or I don't know if he learned this somewhere or what, but he's talking about how, you know, whenever you tell a lie, you got to tell lies to support that lie. And it's really quickly the web of lies spiral out of control and you get ensnared in your own web, right? The lie dies under the weight of its own details, that type of thing. So then I think everybody probably has experience with this themselves, where if you do decide to lie, the best way to do it or the easiest way to get away with it is to... You, you say something that is true in a symbolic or metaphoric sense, right? Where they think you mean one thing, but you actually mean another thing, but you just let them believe what you said. That way you're not having to chase, keep track of what's true and what's not true. You know, you can believe, you can know your version of it. Thank you for the tea. Thank you. So... This is where that why I thought of this was you bringing up the ass because I think that we're all willing to question everything on the so-called sacred timeline. Right. And one of the biggest things on the sacred timeline is the burnt offering, the votive, the Holocaust. Right. And uh, so we'll just we'll just say there's you know, there's a reason to question that story at least the face value of what we're told about it, that question numbers, question methods, question intent, question everything about it, that the, because the, the, the king of the victims status that that event has bequeathed is no longer working. And his bit, his joke is that, you know, <laughs> the gas chambers were about farting under the covers and it's smelling so bad that I died in a gas chamber. We died in the gas chamber. And that's how they kept that lie straight. That, you know, it's about their horrible farts. <laughs> and smelling their own farts. <laughs> so anyway, you know, keep that in mind with, with lies, lying and liars that uh, it op like when it operates effectively, it operates on like systems of metaphor and symbolic meaning as a way to not get confused or caught up and tripped up in your own thing. Not suggesting that people lie or try to give you advice on how to lie, but 
man. Anyway, it's funnier when Owen talks about it, but couldn't resist. Couldn't resist bringing that up. We died in a gas chamber farting under the blankets. <laughs> but let's continue. I want to talk more about some elements of the tower card. Another thing that comes up throughout this whole episode massively. Okay, so there's these two elements of the card. So here's this scene where they're standing at the door and Sylvie's like, aren't you going to tell me not to kick the door in? And Loki says it never made a difference. So he's like, whatever. The first lines of dialogue, really, from the lovers and their behavior through this episode are symbolic of the dove and the serpent on a tower card. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm laughing about the gas chamber the gas chamber with wooden doors that they scratched they scratched as they died they scratched with their fingernails how dare you <laughs> Greta how dare they okay so anyway the the the, the dove and the serpent on oh go ahead well, you're nailing it. This is this is a echo of how the how the showdown went down with the uh, with the smoke monster, where like he has to like take two steps back and get behind her and pat her on the back, like, "Okay, sweetheart, go out there and save the world." Like, I, I got your back here. I'll stay home, and you can go and you know save the day. And then, uh, so she is always taking the initiative, and uh, and so yet again she. D- like it's just so apropos that she turns around and says like aren't you gonna do it he's like no shit i don't do shit you're the one you know you're the one signing on for the military here uh i just want to say there is a very strong ashley babbitt weave we're on the january 6th card we're on the tower card the storming of the bastille is what they call january 6th in america now so the tower aspect of sending the this young lady in to do the dirty work is part of the insult, the grand insult that is baked into this cake. So I just wanted to point out there is some there's some Ashley Babbitt action going on. Abracadabra, you better believe it. Yeah, I didn't even think about the Jan six, the storming of the Bastille, storming of the tower. That's interesting because most of the people involved with that were on the dove side. But just to just to explain. There in Thelema, I said it right, Dylan. Thelema, the these are symbols of love, so that's why I'm associating them with the lovers of the show, right? The dove is Loki, and the dove represents passive love, and the serpent is Sylvie, representing representing active love. I and I'm sure you've probably got riffs on this too, but. In this scene, Sylvie's like, if you think this is a bad idea, I prefer you to speak your mind. And Loki says, no, nothing to say. And it's really just evident throughout this particular episode that that's what they represent. Uh, we'll, We'll say more about this serpent and this dove that are on this card as we go. But if you have watched this or you maybe watch this later, look out the the episode itself, the show itself, maybe look out for this theme because it's it's powerfully there. And uh, this is part of the whole thinking and feeling, right, that are the thinking being the hod, which is the Loki side in this case, and the uh, feeling being Netsack. Now. 
probably in co- more correct correspondence, you'd have the the serpent being a left hand path, which we're associating with Loki, and the dove being a right hand path. I think, but really. It's almost like throughout this, the one who's on the left-hand path is looking over to the right-hand path and is like, what are you doing? Is that, are you doing the right thing? Am I fucking up? And vice versa. And I think that's sort of the relationship between the anima animus, how they mirror each other, that they, you know, they're doing, they're on one side of the tree, but what they see in the mirror is the inverse reflection. So like Loki's on the left-hand path, but he thinks he's on the right-hand path. And Sylvie is on the right-hand path, but she thinks she's on the left-hand path. Does that make sense? Because that's what I see out of this. And that's sort of part of the confusion, too, with the left-hand path, right-hand path of the Kabbalistic tree. That when you look at it, the left-hand path is on your left as you look at it. But if you were on the tree looking back at us in the mirror, then what we're calling the left-hand path is your right (laughs) hand. You know, kind of like the left brain affects the right side of the body and the right brain affects the left side of the body. Like there's this weird, it's a mirror thing, the reflection inverted in the mirror. Yes, it it, it, it is a, it is a very frustrating truism of the realm is, you know, when you're dealing with 50, 50, you either get it a hundred percent right or a hundred percent wrong. Uh, and you're right. They do a lot of that mix matching and kind of keeping you guessing uh, which is which. But I think it's very apropos, uh, especially now that we're, uh, we're now that we know about this quantum entanglement between the two super voids. There's the Bawote super void, which is Hermit card. And now there's a Iridanus uh, super void, which is uh, essentially Aquarius. But I think what they're the thread here is and this I just see it reinforced in mythology in a great many ways. And I I know I'm going to see it more as I learn. I think this thread between the two voids is supposed to be the corpus callosum gap in the brain between the left and right hemispheres. And so right now, like Ian McGilchrist's work is really coming to its fruition. I think he's standing on the shoulders of giants, but the difference between the left brain and the right brain is uh, a high priority in uh, in Hollywood, especially with all of the confusion around Mars versus Venus. You know, Venus is the global warming planet, and Mars is the nuclear waste, nuclear fallout planet. So your mama and daddy are the two major threats, the two global catastrophes incarnate. Mama is a uh, climb bitch agony, and Papa is a uh, nuke rain. In nuke rain. Ukraine? Okay. Okay, so now looking at the this moment where at the base of the tower, do you see how in this scene, if you go back and watch it, you actually see her do this at other parts of the episode too, but this is the most prominent point. They're standing here at the pill the base of the tower and she does all these strange gesticulations with her mouth and her tongue. And I think what we're supposed to get is that she's like working up her courage to, to chart storm the Bastille, you know, but can, I was watching people's mouths cause this is the tower and that's pay. The letter is pay the mouth on the card. And they're at the base of the tower, which is where the mouth is at on the card And at the base of the tower, before they enter and begin to ascend, is when she starts doing all this weird stuff with her mouth. And you see right here, this is all within like a 
five second moment where she does all these gesticulations. Uh, okay. That's cool that you caught this. All right. Okay. The tower card always implies a fall guy. There must be a fall guy. And all this tower card has, I think, four different fall guys. Other ones have two. I'm thinking about lip service. I'm thinking about ventriloquism. Remember the science of the seance of summoning the elders, of invoking the names of the men of renown to uh, divine future outcomes. We call it science. It's really a seance. In its Greek derivative, the word for necromancy was a belly talker or a ventriloquist, somebody who could throw their voice. They could literally stand there with their mouth still. Their pay is not going anywhere. But you would hear a voice in the corner. And then and you would believe that this was information from the beyond that that the science of ventriloquism is science today is what I'm saying. This it's like the same word. So the reason I'm saying this is because this card is throwing its voice. There's something coming out of that mouth. It's throwing a voice. There's ventriloquism intrinsic to this card in a, in a fun way. So I just wanted to mention the neck necromancy ventriloquism throwing of the voice i think they're going to go upstairs and get a bunch of lip service uh and also lip service you know right um so yeah i'm starting to get what you mean with the ventriloquism necromancy science i'm getting it i'm getting it because what is science do that's ventriloquistic is like you know, you're t- you, the voice is thrown. It's really coming from the priesthood. They're telling you a repackaged version of yes. the old yes. mystery doctrine. They're throwing their voice, and it sounds like it's coming from this guy in the white lab coat who's a stand-up guy who's a a scientist. You know, but it's it's the voice is getting thrown. It's totally that. You know, it feels like the vox populi, the voice a- of the people, but it's actually coming from the top of the tower. So in a weird way, the voice that's getting thrown is, is really co- a- coming, or maybe it's an infernal voice from below. You know, it's the demonic voices from below throwing their voice onto somebody above coming out of them like possession. Yes. You know, but the other thing about nec- necromancy, yes. ventriloquism is this possession idea because you're possessing, you've stuffed your hand up in this dummy and you're controlling it and you're and it seems like it's the one talking but really it's possessed it's your possession yes now now i gotta i gotta share some of the thread on this and these are just random stories from the past but there's a story old story about a a child who uh a person who wants more knowledge he goes to the wise man the wise man says you have to go and have intercourse with the with the with the ancestors you have to go and make intercourse with the ancestors so he goes to the graveyard and he starts digging and so uh and a wise man sees him digging the wise man comes up he's like dude what are you doing he's like i'm gonna go have intercourse with the ancestors he's like what do you what come here there's a library right here he takes him across the street and the library is where you go to have intercourse with the ancestors but the moral of the story was that the kid uh, he needed to be digging in the in the graveyard for this guy to pay attention to him to for him to fulfill the oracle to lead him to the library. 
but this tower is a tower of the collection of all the knowledge of the biblio all the library of the accumulation when he get they get to the top they're going to get served paperwork and so communing with the ancestors is necromancy reading written the books of the of the dead men of renown of the past is necromancy it is uh, intercourse with your ancestors so i just wanted to put all those myths into this card and i think it is super cool that you caught her mouth moving her mouth moving and then as ventriloquism was a super subtle theme here i'm just stoked that i could set up these pens and you could knock them down <laughs> I wasn't thinking ventriloquism and necromancy, but man, I'll never think about ventriloquism the same way again or demonic possession. Cool, man. Yeah, buddy. Right, right. And science. Science is belly talk. And that's fascinating because of the placental aspect, the belly talk. It's like, well, you know, we remember know this is the is sacral, the sacral timeline. We're talking about the foundation of things, Yasad, which is the sacral, right. which is the belly. It's the belly, the the sexual generative power, the right, creative right. force, the manifestation power that comes from, descends from the higher spheres through Yasad, your awareness, your inner attentiveness. And then that inner attentiveness projects out onto the world in the external attending that we call attention. And most people believe that that attention is them watching the outer world and trying to figure out what the outer world is doing to them. What's happening to me when the truth, when you understand the emanations, when you understand the, the flow of energy in the cosmos is that actually your divine, like the divine energy that's flowing through your crown from Kater down into your uh, third eye uh -huh. in this descending path is projecting onto the world. It's this. <laughs> so if we're connecting, the, if the third eye and the belly are connected uh, and then how you feel in your gut affects, you know, you know, how you feel in your gut is based on what your inner monologue is and your feelings. Think how many times the wrong thought, like, oh, I'll never see them again. And then you feel sad. Right. So this thought, this inner attending can create feelings in the body, emotions, the movement. That's that feeling is the uh, this is the relationship and the, the, this is the tower. This is the tower path. This is the relationship between Hod thinking and feeling Netsack. It actually, we think that our right. feelings cause thoughts, but our actually our thoughts cause feelings. And it's, we, we get it, but it, I think maybe it can go both ways. Maybe this path can be traveled both directions, but the point is that it's descending from above. And then that, that that those two things working together create this spewing out of you know throwing your voice the words that come out we talked about blessing or cursing the way that you look at the world affects what is there and it's not the world happening to you it's you happening to the world this is the the tertium quid that is the true self is this progression this temporal progression that causes this change it's time Okay, uh, Marquis de Sade used a piss pipe to throw his voice down to the common folks and tell them the secrets of the government and tell them they're killing people in here. You got to burn down the Bastille. He used ventriloquism down to piss pipe. That is the sound coming out of this mouth right here is Marquis de Sade uh, telling everybody the, piss the secrets pipe is of Epstein. The Assad. 
Yassad is the piss He's pipe. It's your penis. Epstein's secrets. Yassad is the generative organ. He's it's pissing the penis. off the people. <laughs> He's pissing off the people by throwing his voice down a piss pipe. Literally, Chance. Okay, hold on. I got to share this. This is for anybody who's been on the slick dissident weave. When Socrates, position number seven in the symposium, when he summons Diotima Monatea into the room, he he is doing ventriloquism. He's speaking for her. He's summoning her. And he is speaking for the only female that comes up in the whole thing. He's number seven. That's the tower card. He's building a case. He actually uses everybody else's examples as a foundation, and he builds up a case. And if you research deeply the symposium, he call, this is the ladder to beauty. This is climbing the ladder, the philosophical ladder to the highest ideal, the beatific uh, seed of Gnostic wisdom that he drops in, um, that sparks off revolutions. And this is what Lenin did. Lenin brought Sophia back. And he uh, basically said, oh, they're talking shit about your mama. You better go out there and kill somebody because they're talking about your mama. That ain't wise. So the Sophia spark is a recipe that they have Gnostically used to descend down the piss pipe, to throw voices and whisper things in your ear that may or may not be true so that you will go and burn down the establishment. And it's also, uh, yeah, it's so many things. Oh, okay, hold on. So well, what you're talking about Pegasus, is Pegasus builds up. Uh -huh. This is it. Let me hold on. It didn't shift. It's yeah. Let me go to it. Wait for it. Also, Wait for it. It's this. This is what you're talking about. Pissing off the people. Am I right? That's it. Yeah. And yep. and the, the feminism. This is the, pro the provocateur. And the, the victim thing that this feminist activist, the peace prize, the piss prize, the Nobel piss prize. Oh, good Lord. Look at that. <laughs> wow, buddy. Okay. So. In the Zodiac. Pegasus builds up and then is discharged on tax day. It, it bridges across Pisces. And then when you hit tax day, that I think of is the electricity setting off and collapsing and then melting all the uh, all your wealth. <laughs> but it melts the snow. And then we move into the spring. It offsets the charge. But, you know, it's cool is very similarly when I move out of the Zodiac and I move into the Enneagram, which is totally a different system. The tower card serves a similar purpose on the Enneagram. It's number seven personality is building up all the knowledge. The five, six, and seven is the thinking group. And so we've built up the knowledge to a pinnacle. And we're as we bridge from the seven into the eight, we're breaching a crucial dividing line of discernment and we're making a decision. And so the stacking of information that is the tower is all the things you might want to know before you leap into the acting group which is the eight nines and the ones is the do is the gut it's the instinct so it's strange to me how the pegasus serves that as the markation of taxes in the zodiac but it does the same thing in the enneagram as the accumulation of information before you decide to move into uh, to take control number eight okay decide. I'm glad we're going for two decide <laughs>
Yeah, I'm glad we're going for two as well. I think it's absolutely necessary. Uh, you know, if we're doing this, let's go big. It's more fun. I'm having fun. I love what the chat's talking about, how we may feel an emotion, yeah, you know but what? we are not that emotion. It. And how people like our language, we say, I am sad, but it's not the same as how they would say it in some other languages where they'd say, I'm ha I have sadness or I'm having sadness. I think that's really important to realize that it's like you're catching, you know, you caught feelings, but you're not the feelings you caught them as in, it's like an action. It's, it's relating to that emanation yeah. I'm talking about. Cause when we say I am that it's almost like we're that, it be, that the feelings become our foundation of who we are rather than we are what we are. And then the feelings <laughs> emanate from that. And it's, or like the, we don't, you see what I'm saying? It's like an inversion to say, I am this, I am that when we're yeah. talking about feelings. I love that the chat's talking about that. Thank you. Rachel. Totally right. and then, yes. I love this topic uh, because we command our feelings, but isn't it, it's almost scary to think about, but do our thoughts have us? Do the facts have us? Because facts live longer than you. They were here before you. They're here. They don't care about your opinion. So the facts actually have us. So thoughts, if, if it's a good thought, it actually has you and it's not mutable, but your feelings are. And so you own your, your feelings. But in a weird way, if it's a solid fact, it's going to outlive you. Something to think about. Yeah, thoughts can have us kind of in strange ways. And that's how you know you know it, because it knows you, and it doesn't change. <laughs> <laughs> well, and think about how many ideas or inventions show up to different people at the same time in different places. You know, that proves that I, or like that, 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 that is a fact, you know, it's provable. That's happened many times in history that's been recorded. That does not prove that the thought or the feeling is an emanation that is coming from a, a common source rather than being you. Uh, that it's, I think that's important. It's one way to understand that. Then anyway, the, the next part of this dialogue in the scene, as we're about three minutes into the uh, plot of this episode, <laughs> <laughs> we're getting about a rate of an hour, a minute per hour. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's the ratio of the actual show to our analysis. It's awesome. This is what you guys are here for. The, this moment though, she's, she's taking a pause. She's waiting. And she says, I've been waiting for this moment my entire life. So she just needs a moment, just needs a, a moment to collect herself. That's what all those mouth motions were for. But I'll remind you that Netsack, which she represents in this episode is the, Long suffering endurance. And I even think that this moment where, you know, she keeps looking to him, like, should I wait? Should I, should I, should I charge in or should I wait and take a moment here? Uh, wouldn't, should, are you going to tell me not to kick the door in? This is that moment where she's looking in the mirror and in the mirror, she sees the right hand or she sees the, uh, the left hand path while she's the right hand path or, or vice versa. You know what I mean? Like she's normally the charging ahead, but she's looking to him to see if she should wait. And so she's like imitating what she's seeing in the mirror. This is almost like the identifying with the feelings thing that we were just talking about. Then <laughs> I think there's something to that. Uh, and then they finally do open the door and they go in and we see two pillars. We see, uh, two statues. So, so there's two figures associated with these two filler fillers, <laughs> filler, pillar, P H F P 
anyway, the uh, this moment. Where am I at my tree? Oh, yeah. So the fact that these figures are hooded, I think, is a clue to the fact that we're looking at this as Kabbalistic because one of the meanings of Kabbalah has to do with like a concealed or hidden knowledge, transmission of knowledge. And you notice that just like in the tree of life, both the left pillar and the right pillar lead to the same center. And that's important. Both sides of the tree lead to Keter. <laughs> and that's what's at the top of this tower. That's the uh, the crown, the king, crown, Kronos, Kronos. And then as they, we'll talk more about that, both sides leading to the same inevitable end, because that's an obvious theme. You know, they get, a, they get handed a dialectic later in the episode by the crown, by Kronos. And the, the dialectic is the same exact thing. It seems like opposite choices, but the same outcome results from seemingly. And isn't that like the Hegelian dialectic that the misunderstanding and the co-opting of Hegel has been labeled by the truth, truth community. And, Oh, you got something, Gabe? I see you on mute. Mm-hmm. I see you on mute yeah. there, buddy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you see uh, if I saw the hoods right away? Yeah, this is definitely the Brotherhood. Um, but could you also see these as dolphins? Do you see a bit of a dolphin shape to them? That's the smooth heads and uh, that little brim. Not almost looks not schizo like enough. A, no, you know, it's kidding. like a, you know, the dolphin kidding. has a long no, I, nose. I could, I could dig it. Yeah. So uh, the Dolphinus constellation is right here in Capricorn, going from Capricorn into Aquarius, uh, which is totally where I see us right now. And that's just something I observed is I, uh, I've perceived those two as dolphins. Um because of the Tacitus Flavius uh, family crest is basically the swan constellation in the shape of a anchor with two dolphins swimming around it. And so the ingredients of these of this heraldry, I think, is uh, part of the scenery, part of the backdrop. So, yeah, I was seeing two dolphins from Dolphinus and their significance to that swan, which I think that anchor, that swan, I think it is also the Ukraine flag. So. I just uh, always keep these archetypal threads uh, in the picture because they every once in a while you dismiss them on the first go and you come back around. You're like, oh, this needed to be like highlighted because Sophie's sword is the pineapple ace of swords card, which is the color of Ukraine. And now the Ukraine flag. I'm just saying uh, we're we're totally seeing uh, I'm seeing dolphins. I got something for you. This this is, I think, a Gabe level uh, crazy. <laughs> so, see the bottom of the tower. It, the mouth is at the bottom of the tower. Uh, it's the base of the tower where this is happening. We know that the letter B and P can swap, and that just like P is also F, P and F or P and PH switch. So, he, hear me out. Of of all the holes on your face, the mouth is the only one that's a singular hole. 
You know, there's two holes on your nose. There's two holes for the eyes, two holes for the ears. Um, the mouth, which is pay, is if your head is the tower, the mouth is at the base of it. And the base, when you do that letter swapping, is the face. So the mouth is at the base of the face. <laughs> that just popped into my head. You know, there's like all these weird things that go on with language, though. So that's there. And the eyes are at the top of the tower. The third eye is at the top of that. Right. You know, there, there, that's actually, that's worth uh, passing forward for other people just to keep an ear open for this again, that sometimes I have heard breakdowns of biblical families as like uh, pairing off like different body parts so that like there's a mama and a daddy. So that's two eyes. There's a brother and a sister. So that's two ears. And there's this one black sheep who doesn't have a corresponding part. Well, that will often be the singular orifice. And I've seen this like in the aorta, aorta, in the heart. I've seen this in other parts, aspects of the body that like the family, all everybody gets along. They're all balanced. But the one black sheep, the one unwanted, the exceptional one corresponds with the body part that is singular in its nature. You know, we have two lungs, we have, but we only have one heart. We have two livers, but we only have one no, we have two kidneys, but only one liver. You know, there's these two to the one correspondences that I've seen expressed in l language families and mythology families corresponding to our anatomy. So, yeah, that's that's cunning insight. That's that's that'll pay out if you keep that in your pocket. Well, I also am thinking, too, about how. Later in this episode, there's a serious fascist moment like we're going to think about the fas the fascists, the symbol, you know, the sticks wrapped around the bundle of sticks wrapped around the axe symbol of fascism. But isn't it interesting to consider that the Latin word for face also for appearance or form. So we're talking about the skeleton, the form, the appearance, the appearance that we attend to of the outer world that is projected from Yassad, our, our attending mind, our attention. That the word in Latin for face or form or appearance is facies or facies. And the word for fa facies is facies. So it's like facies, facies or something like that. And then facies. It's like a such a slight difference. The difference is F-A-C-I-E-S or F-A-S-C-E-S. It's like the same word, though. It's the same word, fascism and face in Latin. Really weird. Right. That's another one. Like, I think we need to let that percolate to understand. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. You know, um, I'll just mention the uh, face is what the word shekel translates to, you know, and technically, you know, to to give so much uh, potency to a graven image is a big no, no in a lot of circles. So. Yeah, the, the uh, and then fascis face, and then let's not forget feces. <laughs> and a lot of people actually associate gold uh, with feces in the in the occult world. That's a, that's an antiadromia. Really, I'm, it's like I've never heard of it's gold, shekel but it's relating to face. Poop. Are you talking about Donald Trump's face on the yeah, shekel? Yeah, shekel is a. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Because I don't, I don't see anything in like a quick <laughs> etymology that has anything to do with face with shekel. But that doesn't mean it's not there. I just don't have a quick. I can't pull up a quick receipt on that. You know me. I'm always checking your receipts. Yeah, and that always fascinated me because. But there are always faces yeah, yeah. on shekels. Well, I I always, mean, don't I'm get me wrong. That's true. Totally, totally. And then the other thing about them capturing your face and putting it into a graven image is it's a shackle. Now you're shackled to this to this alloy. Uh, you're captured on it. You're you're trapped. You've been shepherded. You've been captured. Did. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna keep going. Talk, talking shit on your shackle weave, but no, there's, there's, uh, that's, that's good. I, I, I mean, there's so much to know about from coins in terms of a better understanding of history. But jumping on, as they come into this, uh, uh, what do you would call it, like antechamber? You know, they're in the the vestibule of the tower, the entrance. The, then, in like a horror movie sense, boom the AI jumps out at them. <laughs> so they enter the ruin or the heap stupa, which is a tower. And, you know, the interesting thing, there's even a domed top to this tower, like a stupa is designed. So that whole weave in the previous episode about the stupa is totally there. <laughs> and here we have, I'm bringing up this word again, the uh, Aleph Yad which could transliterate to AI. And the first thing they see is AI. I know that that's not like real in terms of the intention behind ancient Hebrew because the acronym AI for artificial intelligence wasn't a thing, but it's a fun synchronicity for us in the present moment, you know, understanding time to be, you know, if we're going into the center to find the Lord of time, going into the middle, then all of a sudden, these things in the linear aspect no longer matter. Maybe that's how we can explain these synchronicities between stuff like AI, 80, a heap, a ruin, and AI, artificial intelligence, as it shows up right when they walk into the heap or the ruin, stupa. So there she is. Miss Minutes. <laughs> AI jumping out at them. And I do want to talk about, you know, first of all, they're at the, she's welcoming them to the Citadel at the end of time. I want to talk about how. It's not the end. It is the center. We were shown that at the start. And that's so important. You go back, listen again to me trying my best to explain Kant. It's very hard to do, but that your true self is more temporal than you might think. And in fact, there's a lot of shit talking that's been done to sort of dissuade you from that idea. But hey, Everything spiritual and sacred seems to relate to the idea of time, doesn't it? Even the temple, your third eye being between your temples, the temple being the house of God, whether it's your physical body or the, you know, the, the, the structure, the architecture. So speaking of this temple of God, this temple of Kronos in the comics, they call Kang's Citadel Chrono, Chronopolis. So when we know that polis, aside from being a word that means city, is also a word that refers to gates and wisdom. You know, it's like the time gate, Chronopolis, and the uh, the time gate to the center <laughs> is 
the time gate is within you because you're the you a gate is like something that controls the flow of something you know you open the gates more more of the the water or the flow of people or whatever it is comes through you open them all the way you know it's on a on abridged at that point you you narrow the gates less can come through so when you understand that that like you're the guardian of the threshold of time you're subjective experience your perspective your inner attending to and your external attending to the phenomenon of the inside the inner world and the outer world is what restricts constricts or dilates and expands you know quickens or slows the speed of time then you understand that you're the you're the time lord man you're the time lord i've brought this up before you know times when i've felt time actually stop temporarily temporarily it's all very paradoxical but what's important here since we're in the citadel at the end of time is that we talk about chronos on the left although that's pretty indistinguishable from a lot of statues of serapis or hades or dispotter or pluto etc etc because they're all the same guy and rhea his consort who's also identifiable as kybel uh aphrodite uh, name them. It goes on and on. You know, we're, we could go on and on syncretizing them. But the point being that they both, both Kronos and his wife, his consort, wear the fortress crown. And this helps you syncretize them as the same person. You know, another way to understand them as the same person, like Hermaphrodite, Hermaphrodite, two, two versions, the masculine and feminine side of the same being, the same God, is you see on. The, the top of uh, the Rhea statue here, she's got this symbol is called the seed of life. Yep. And what is a seed? What's the spelling of seed in the ancient? What's the root? It's K-R-N. Same as it's a kernel, kernel, corn. It's this. That's the, that's the seed. K-R-N is the exact same consonants as crone, chronos. So you see, the mother is the father, just like I've said a bazillion times in a bazillion ways. And so we're in the Citadel at the end of time. But on their head is a fortress crown. Uh, Rhea, the mother, she's Ma Rhea. Okay. So Maria, Mary, that's Mother Mary. She, Kronos is time, her husband. She gives birth to Zeus, J. Zeus. <laughs> Mary gives birth to Jesus. So if the mother is if the mother Mary is the same as the husband husband Kronos, who's time. What do we to what are we to make of the very next thing that happens in this scene is and is uh basically an attempt to put these two these these two characters, Loki and Sylvie, back under Mary time law. Kronos, Rhea, yeah, time, buddy. and Maria, Mary, time. Yes, sir. Uh, if anybody hasn't watched this or cares to go back and rewatch it, pay close attention to the blocking of this scene in the first antechamber. They actually they like get their bearings, they get their courage together, they muster some wherewithal, and they actually start to encroach on Miss Minutes' space. And Miss Minutes actually starts walking backwards at first. 
And then the argument takes a turn. The, the, the spirit of the conversation starts to work in Miss Minute's benefit, and they actually walk backwards another retrograde. They go back to the front of where they started in the antechamber, and the conversation starts to progress around the other way. In the weirdest way, uh, as their argument waxes and wanes, they're actually gaining and losing space in the antechamber. It is very weird. Uh, there's a lot of manipulation to what's going on between the lines with that. Um, but then I got to mention the siete. Card number 16, one plus six is seven. Siete. Siete. This is the city. It is the citadel. The citadel. The city is on their head. They're wearing siete. And Zeus, again, number seven personality type. Um, uh, and also he has that female ideal, that high ideal, that blessed Sophia that he speaks of. She is the, uh, the lesson keeper of love. And again, with that high mindedness, these silly hats, these guys are wearing, they are all siete. They're civic minded. They have their, their, uh, group think their city is in their head. And it's constructive. That's interesting too, because if you go to the... Well, if you the, go to the, the Hindus, it was a fabrication. Oh. You got, you got to go. That ahead. was the last oh, part. Yeah. Okay. Oh, <laughs> guys, we're dealing with a little, everything they, <laughs> we got a time delay with each other. So there's like a, sometimes we're good on that. Sometimes we're not. It's super funny. That's all right. Uh, I'll, I'll say this last thing that they're civic minded. They have the hive mentality like bees, Right. Bees build up, build the beehive, uh, their hive mind. Well, the beehive cluster is in Cancer, which is another another seven. So the seven of the tower card, which I stretch from Pegasus all the way to Cancer, corresponds to the beehive that is in Cancer uh, for the hive mindedness. Oh, well, I want to talk about since you're bringing up, you know, the city, citadel. The Siddha is, I think, a Hindu deity, Siddha, the, who is like the mother of medicine. So like a female Asclepius to the Tamils, which is very old, or the Dravidians, the south of India. But then the word Siddha, it refers to like powers, uh, you know, that Siddhars were people that are accomplished, one who's accomplished, ascended masters, that type of idea. So in a way, you know, this is a tower thing. They're ascending. This is an ascension. So they're at the Siddha Dell where they're going to do their ascension. Right. I wanted to talk about yeah. the the qualities of the Siddhas. This is a in Jainism, how they talk about this, because this is perfect. This is exactly how he who remains is depicted. So the eight Siddhas are well, you, you go first. It seems like you want to. Well, you mentioned Tamils, uh, the Tamils, that's the name of Elihu Yale's little black homunculus who keeps popping up in all of his paintings. Tamil is uh, Kamala Harris's roots. Her, her mother is from Tamil. I think they use the language of Tamil in the international gym industry to speak in a very remote classic tongue that is obscure only to those in the inner circle. but. Having a Tamil homunculus is is a theme from like, you know, 
the elites from the Dutch India Trading Company. And it's just so profound. I've talked about it on my channel that now we have a president with a little Tamil Kamala homunculus by his side. And she's, you know, of course, she's the first woman, first, first virgin, all kinds of virgin aspect. And that's just got a sacrificial value. If she's a virgin, if she has all these firsts and she's a Tamil, there's a lot of sacrificial values to all of those things. But what do you know about Tamil that, that is on your radar that you've researched? Well, it's an area that I haven't researched super well. Uh, Dylan can tell us more about okay. it. He's probably playing cyberpunk, though. Too busy to chat. Tell us about Tamil. Okay, that just, that, <laughs> that just hit a chord for me. Well, I just wanted <laughs> yeah. to drop on, on the... I did have thoughts on the Siddhas that are the eight okay. supreme qualities of a liberated soul, which is first is infinite faith in the essential principles of reality, also known as tattvas. So power of belief or faith and infinite knowledge, infinite perception, infinite power, fineness, interpenetrability. That's an interesting one. Interpenetrability is manifested on the destruction of the name determining karma. So that's like, <laughs> I'm not sure how I, how to understand that other than the interpenetrability Siddha has to do with destroying the like the straw man or like, you know, the amount of your power that you put into a name, something like that. I could be getting that wrong. Need some Jane Janus person to help me understand. Uh, the seventh Siddha, it literally means neither heavy nor light. So this weird limbo zone where like you're 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 weightless, but not in the sense like you weigh nothing, but like weightless as in you've destroyed the karma that determines that status entirely. <laughs> so and then the uh, this eighth is undisturbed in undisturbability, infinite bliss. So I'm not saying that this is necessarily like a good philosophy, right? But this is the idea that the siddhas and when you get down to the bottom of it and Jainism and Buddhism and stuff like this, all of these siddhas have to do with destroying some particular brand of karma. But when you look at all these karmas, if you destroy them all, you basically cease to exist. <laughs> you know, you're destroying the karma of status. You're destroying the karma of feeling. You're destroying the karma, karma of life determination of name of obstructions, which is part of your, you know, experience in life, the karma. So, you know, you're, you're getting to the point where everything is unobscured and you're entering the one, the oneness or the all whiteness, which is, you know, pure order in a way, but it's no, diff it's not really different from chaos because there's, I don't, did you ever see the daredevil TV show where the kingpin just constantly staring at, at this white wall or a white, a painting that's just pure white. You know, he's trying to, uh, yes. <laughs> he's, he's simulating or trying to experience this, like this idea of Siddha where he's liberated from the, the form of the body and from all the karma that he's created in life. And he's just having temporary Samadhi experience of just pure, uh, <laughs> pure white, pure order. That type of thing. Yes. 
and, and it's uh, it's kind of funny how like again with the white and the weight and the weightlessness and the void, the uh, the nothingness of it, uh, the absence, the emptiness, the tabula rasa. Uh, it's so funny to me how it's like uh, these Buddhist these Buddhist practices are uh, they're very helpful. They're very useful. You know, self self ownership is key with all these practices. Uh, but in the end of the day, you're like, it takes you to oblivion. It's just kind of, it kind of, yeah. Are you self brainwashing? Is that really what it is? That you're just like, okay, I'm good to pathologically not think. And every time I think I'm going to think, I'm going to let go of that thought so that I make sure I make a really good point of not thinking very much. (laughs) I know it's about clarity. It's about having clarity of thought. I understand. So I think I see, I think I see the door, like where I'm going to wrap us up for tonight. So I'm going to try to get us there. I want to get through this moment in the vestibule. Then I think we'll be good. So okay, (laughs) try to get us there. Uh, We won't rush it though. Uh, (laughs) Citadel, (laughs) Citadel LLC, formerly known as Citadel Investment Group is an American multinational hedge fund and financial services company founded 33 years ago in 1990. Think of this as, uh, let me read here, taking weather prediction to a new level. This is straight off the Citadel website. From agricultural products to natural gas, changes in the weather play a key role in determining the prices of commodities. We asked, what if we could forecast those changes better than anyone else? Read weather control. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not forecast. They're forecasting it as in they're casting it for you. You know, they're casting the weather. Uh, over the past five years, our commodities business has assembled a team of PhD atmospheric scientists who understand and can predict signals generated from weather phenomena, from windstorms that last two days to El Nino events that last season. Working in tandem with a team of high-performance computing specialists, they've built a differentiated applied research operation. Whole bunch of whole bunch of bullshit. But you know, this is. This weather prediction that they tout on their website, Citadel, is basically predicting the future, right? To the future of time to generate wealth, a cornucopia. Think like American gods. In an American god sense, this Citadel LLC is like Kronos or Pluto incarnate as a corporation. Whenever you see weather prediction, just read weather control. Prediction means you spoke it, you know, you, you prescribed it, pre-spoke it. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's it, prediction means I, I chose it. I controlled it. I, I set it up ahead of time. <laughs> That's not, it's not what, you know, you, you read it. This is what I'm talking about with lot. When I was talking about liars, liars, will they're, t- they're saying the truth, but they've got you thinking they've implied it in a way where you think that it means something else. But they never lied. So they can just go on about their business without having to even keep track of their lies. This is the what like manipulating the common, the vulgar tongue to be misunderstanding of what the priestly or the, the perfect, the perfected language, the true definition is. This is what happens. This is what falls through the cracks, guys, is that they can say weather prediction. And you think, oh, they're just they're really good at guessing what's going to happen. When really, they're just straight up telling you, we control the weather or we manipulate the weather. And we do that to rig and, and alter markets and generate wealth. <laughs> and, they're not, and they're not lying, you know, but, they're, but you believe it in a different way than what they're saying. Yeah, this is a perfect example of it. 
It is so profound. It is so profound. Great, great find. So I've been uh, making a correspondence to uh, the Dow Jones, Dogs of War, uh, manipulating, uh, crop dusting the psychology of the masses so that they can predict uh, the psychic weather and the effects of it on the stock market. And so I'm starting more and more to think about what we're doing when we decode these films as disseminating the seeds that have been put in place to determine whether or not you're going to make a certain decision in the future. Uh, But this is a great find. And uh, I'll just mention El Nino and El Nina, uh, the masculine or a feminine. To me, I hear the number nine. It's not necessarily what it means, but to have a masculine nine and a feminine nine, that's two snakes, teth, teth, uh, definitely has a caduceus potential that there's a one. And Tiresias, the story of Tiresias, who finds two serpents mating, a female and a male. So yeah, the El Nino and El Nina, to me, hail back to Tiresias and uh, reading of auguries, man, again, with reading of auguries. Great score here, the Citadel. Yeah, they also have a Citadel totally Securities firm. About. I think so. That's totally what they're talking about. That's totally what's being disclosed, man. Yeah, and he, he who remains, he's <laughs> controlling the sacred timeline. He's predicting it. He's predictating it. He's a dictator. Okay, so here in this moment, uh, she is announcing who lives here is he who remains. And I, I I screwed up with my screenshot here, but HWR, he who remains HWR equals 15. I, I missed the part where I show the sum, but it's six, four, five. <laughs> so, and there's multiple points in this episode nice. where you're very strongly uh, shown. Like it's not, alluded to it's just straight up shown especially later that he who remains is the devil you know he totally is the devil yeah he says says so in his own words and he does like oppose you know we'll get to that yeah you know no funny thing about the number six card in in my enneagram number six is the uh it's the chapel perilous and it oftentimes has something to do with somebody who's waiting for somebody who's worthy enough. It's like an empty seat that when somebody fulfills a prophecy, then then they can uh, sit there. Or if they pull this sword out of the stone, then they get to be the special one. So he who remains to me, it, it does echo that somebody's waiting for the prophecy to be fulfilled for somebody to take the chapel perilous. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that's a solid weave. Okay, got a little off on my my numbering on my notes versus my PowerPoint. But yeah, also notice that the devil is standing on the net sack. See, standing on your net sack. <laughs> That's why Sylvie, who's on the, the, the net sack side, she's feeling so strongly that she wants to kill the devil. It's because he's standing on her net sack and it hurts. It's hurt feelings. <laughs> <laughs> it's been bugging her all this time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and notice how these people are all white on this card. White people. Oh, and yeah. when we 
remember that when we look at the people on the tower card in a moment. But in this scene, she describes he who remains ability to he wants to cut them a deal and he wants to offer them. He's offering them all the things they've ever wanted. Power, rulership, temporal happiness, uh, you know, the infinity gauntlet, absolute power, the a place in the sacred timeline where they could be happy, where, you know, all the things that were their original fate can be rewritten. And this is another test. This is exactly this. He who remains is the devil. He's tempting them. This is exactly like Jesus being tempted by Satan in the Bible. And I found this uh, old ass illustration. I think this is like 12th century or something, but notice Notice that he's standing on like an egg on the top of a mountain. See that? There's lots of the savior figure standing on an egg. That's pay attention to that because we're going to look at that in a second. (laughs) Uh, Actually, we'll just go right to that. So there's these Jesus in a desert. He gets tempted by Satan to turn the rocks into bread. Okay, that's important because part of this sacral Yassad foundation thing has to do with how your creative force is driven by hunger. And you might not realize that, (laughs) you know, that's, that's kind of lost on people. I'll try to explain that. So, okay. The devil is like tempting Jesus. Who's been fasting for 40 days to turn the rocks into bread because he has the power to, and he denies that. And then he's, uh, I don't know. There's one other thing that happens. And then the devil takes him to the top of a mountain and says, you can rule all the lands of the world. You can see the entire world from the top of this mountain. That means he's on the cosmic egg. He's Fane's coming out of the egg that Kronos created out of the chaos or the void. Okay. So this is definitely that moment in the biblically speaking, but the, uh, the hunger part of this, of Yassad, the foundation, because he's on the he's on the foundation of the world, right? The how do I explain this? The best way to understand it is to talk about it in the context of a a client I just had, tuning wise, where we had to work on this for this client particularly. Now we're taught through the church and or through society or through our parents or through these various ways to associate the sexual energy with naughtiness, bad, right? That a lot of to the point where a lot of people only can get aroused when they have the idea of bad or sin or naughty with it attached with it. Pornography is notoriously responsible for the acceleration of this phenomenon way further than the church ever managed to get it. So it's actually getting worse (laughs) in terms of the general vibe of society with this. But when you okay, so this client that I had had early in life, like as a toddler, two year old, she had this exuberant powerful, energetic, you know, spark for life, really expressive, really energetic, like two-year-olds are, you know, bouncing off the walls. That's this, the thing that, uh, you know, and this is misunderstood about Freud. When Freud talks about children being sexual creatures, he's not talking about pederasty. He's not talking about children should have sex or adults should sexualize children. He's talking about how in the, for the child who's in the unconditioned state, their sacral energy, which is a sexual energy, is actually is unbridled in its power. And it's and it comes out like pure enthusiasm. 
energetic enthusiasm, running circles around the house, you know, boundless energy. That's because the sexual energy hasn't been degraded, restricted, gated, right? Like all of those things that we do with it as we become adults. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have the control over the threshold of the sexual energy. That's part of being mature. But for most people, it's blocked up, dammed up and uh, explodes out in, a, you know, oh, my God, I'm squirting type of way rather than a more <laughs> controlled usage of a, a more tantric ability or technique. Tantra means technique. So anyway, this 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 person I tuned, the sexual energy as a toddler was restricted, tamped down. This was showing up in the throat, a.k.a. the mouth uh, chakra and in the sacral chakra and in the root chakra in a few places. And the uh, restriction was like, you got to calm down. You're you're too crazy. Uh, This is too much. And anyway, what what corresponds with this hunger of the sacral chakra is that the more hungry you are, the better food tastes. Right. And it's like Epicurus says, hunger is the best seasoning and good company is the best spice. That that type of idea, the Epicurean philosophy. So. When uh, when we get into a comfort zone in life. We're never very hungry. Okay. So that, uh, you know, the gluttony thing in a way restricts the sexual energy. That's a problem of the seven. And it, this, this tuning clan had their sexual energy associated with being bad or naughty or shouldn't happen. So essentially what should be a sweet feeling, the flavor of the sacral energy getting powerful became something that was more like bitter and difficult for her. And so throughout life, she was constantly being uh, brought to the brought manifestations of, you know, in her external world of two bad choices, you know, caught between a rock and a hard place, that type of thing. Damned if you do, damned if you don't type of choices. And you see how that's a theme in this episode. How at the end, they're given a binary and both choices suck, right? So this is something to get a handle on is that like you need to have a proper gating open, like dilation in the right moment and restriction in the right moment with your sexual creative energy so that you can stay hungry. You keep the, and that's what keeps the furnace of the sacral powerful. And so that you can stay so that the, uh, the flavor of the food or of what's offered to you by life, by the external is always sweet and good. And if you manage this properly, then what you get offered to you by the manifestations of life is abundance is, is uh, multiple options that are all awesome, right? Rather than damned. If you do damned, if you don't rock in a hard place type of choices, so this is Jesus going through the rock in a hard place, you know, Satan on the top of the mountain, that type of thing. But he stays hungry. He stays hungry. He does not turn the rocks into bread. And that's how he transcends or has his enlightenment moment like Buddha in the cleft of the rock and of the mountain. The moment where he's tempted by demons that come to him and, try, you know, they they'd even do it in a sexual way. They have like the demon like manifests dancing sexy ladies and tries to get Buddha to sway from his, his uh, aesthetic moment of restricting 
So this whole concept of like your creative force is super important to understand the gate aspect of it and the hunger aspect of it. I did my best to describe that. It's hard to maybe even put into words. It's like, you got to just get it in life. And I'm not even perfect at it. Uh, I, I don't stay hungry enough in a literal sense. And I, I ought to work on that. And, you know, you got to work on it maybe one sphere of life at a time. But this is a really big part of the of the the theme that's kind of esoteric to all, all of this Yasad foundation, sacral chakra and thoughts and feelings of the next sphere up the solar plexus, your will and how they interact with each other. Yeah, man, this, that's totally what's in this conversation too is miss minutes is I, my read on the, on the dialogue here is like, she, uh, she is making an offer for something with the presumption that they don't already have it. And I think both of the Lokis in their own way, their response, they kind of, they kind of fall for the trick uh, by based on both of their answers. And then Miss Minutes is like, see right there because of their answers, she knows that she just tricked them into thinking they don't already have this this togetherness on a timeline, this potential future. She's like, if you come, if you just go our way, then we'll give you, uh, you guys could be together on your own timeline together. And they're like, that's, that's a fiction. And he's like, I determine my own, my own future. You're getting ahead of me. Dude. The, oh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you caught that part of the conversation, you, but that's totally oh, Jesus. You know, I did. Tempted. Well, and I want, I want to just hold your thought there because I want to walk us into that more, even, even more specifically, because that moment is so important. It is, that's the final temptation. You could be together. We'll get to that, but see Jesus, let's talk about Jesus standing on the egg for a moment before we get there. This is somebody you've maybe never heard of, but do you know who this God is, Gabe, that we're looking at depictions of here? Uh, these are all y'all the Bayoth, right? Abraxas? Actually, according to the historians, antiquarians, whatever you want to call them, this is a god called Ion, Cro- Ion Kronos. Oh. So we talked about okay. Ion before, but Ion and Kronos mm-hmm. syncretized to the same being. Uh, also got to point out Rachel's really good comment here in the Beatitudes. It's promised that those who hunger shall be filled. So I've never prayed to fill me, but rather make me hungry. That is genius. Pray to be hungry. Think about it, dude. The hungry people are the ones that get shit done. You know, you want to be hungry. You don't want to, you don't want to be filled. It's a, uh, it's that Taoist principle that a, a vessel's usefulness is in its empty space. It's emptiness, not in its filledness. It's no longer useful if it's filled. Anyway, this is uh, yeah, Ion Kronos. It's high, it's high sophistication. <laughs> high sophistication. Hot fire. Ion Kronos, in all these versions, he stands on an egg and he has a serpent wrapped around it. That's Jesus. That's the Jesus on the cross or the pole, as in the Nakash, the serpent wrapped around the pole. The serpent wrapped around the pole in this case is the body that the serpent winds around, like the Kundalini spiral. Uh, recall that <laughs> coil is an anagram for Loki as well. And uh, right. seeing how, do you see the goat legs on one of these versions of Ion Kronos? Motherfuckers got goat legs. Uh-huh. That's, you know, same as Baphomet, same as the <laughs> devil. 
this is your this is your clue when you see these ion chrono statues that Jesus and the devil are the same guy. They're the same guy. So <laughs> so when when the ancients who made up these ion chrono statues knew what they knew is that your tempter is not something external. Even if it shows up in the external world with like, hey, you want to hit? Hey, you want a beer? Hey, you want to you want a prostitute? I don't know. You get it. It's actually yourself that is the tempter. It's your inner world affecting your outer world. It's the uncontrollable aspect of your unconscious coming to you to try to uh, diverge you from your path. You know, are you sure you want to do this? Do you think I should kick the door in right now? Or are you going to tell me not to? You get it? So uh-huh. note the lion head and the serpent body. Also, that's uh, the one in the middle, particularly. It's kind of hard to make out, but it shows like rays of the sun as a crown on the head as well. Like your um, Mithras and all these other light bearer characters. That's because the god of time, Ion Kronos, is the sun. It's what we measure time by. Not a planet with a 28 to 30 year cycle. That is not the God of time. That's a terrible clock for daily life. Are you kidding me? That thing barely moves. <laughs> it's, a t- it's a terrible clock, Saturn, the planet. Not at all. So Kronos is definitely the sun. Uh, yeah. And Jesus is the devil. I'm not saying that to disparage Jesus. I'm talking about it like the way Young talked about it, how the Christian God is lacking because it leaves out the question of evil. And it all comes from the same source. So it must come from God. So, you know, creator, destroyer, preserver, all the same guy. It's that's what that's what is lost in the fouling up of the system. But these statues definitely help you see it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and the lion headed serpent, you know, just to, to like remind us uh, of the, the card. The last little thing, and then I'll let you go for it, is he created all and he controls all, says Miss Minutes, about he who remains. That's the lion-headed serpent that's on the card. And see what's around his head is the sun. The solar disk is around his head. So it's the sun, baby. Demiurge. (laughs) Also... Toxoplasmosis. <laughs> oh yeah, like the that, crazy that old whatever nut. coming out of the ass of the cat. That old chestnut. We can't forget the toxo. Uh, but you know uh, the, something fun about the coil was a thought that I had. I think maybe today. Uh, people believing in seven days repeating themselves. People uh, getting into the groove of this uh, this entrainment of the of the grooves of your mind. Uh, creates this false cancellation that like that this has happened before or that uh that we're not really getting anywhere and so if you buy into the calendar then you're in this two-dimensional circle that doesn't go anywhere but if you really think about time and your experience in this realm you're actually spiraling in some sort of forward progression that will never ever be back where it was before ever but we talk about it two dimensionally where the serpent eats its own own tail, but that can never really happen. If you, if you three dimensionalize your philosophy, it, it coils in into life and progresses forever and ever. And that is by em- embracing my, that thought form, what you're doing is your, uh, ex your, uh, it's an exorcism. 
you're removing the spirit of the calendar from your thoughts and you're realizing that no two days are the same, no two moments are the same, no two thoughts are even, we're constantly building. And that's what I think the coiling serpent, the lesson of it is. And then I'll say this last thing is uh, that five loops, it coils five times around uh, the, the, the figure. That's the figures of uh, Venus. And knowing that harmonic resonance of its cycles, which encodes the letter phi in this fact, is a knowing and that knowing has the figure like we were talking earlier like i i have my feelings but do the true figures and facts of the realm the unalterable truisms do they have us and that's what i think those loops the five rings that's the five rings literally the samurai book is the five rings of venus and that fact has us which I could see people taking those words and construing them into you're trapped in the matrix, that the facts have you. But, uh, you know, you know how I feel about that. It's a take. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah. If you want to be a, a villain, sure. Believe that you're a slave. Uh, that's totally. I think why I can't totally. I think that's why Kang is a black guy in this. It's a metaphor for if you believe that you're if you believe you're enslaved then you become the villain uh that's we'll talk about that oh, wow. <laughs> yeah you see what yeah. i mean like it's, it's the same it's as the three hours the, same <laughs> as the holocaust consciousness anyway okay so he who remains he created all he controls all lion-headed serpent vibe let's look at this guy this is naubus in the middle it's same as Abraxas. It even has IAO or Iota Alpha Omega, Yao at the bottom, but it says Naubus at the top. There's, I'm sure, deeper mysteries to Naubus than what I can explain here. I'd love to learn more. I plan on learning more as I can, but let's talk about just uh, Yaldabaoth, Naubus, Yao, all of these. It's also called Noose, which is mind, and Noose is also sun backwards. Think about that uh, with the N to R swap. It's Sir backwards. Uh, he's also called Neff as the B in Naubus can swap with the P or PH. So it's if you just add an A at the front to to uh, Naubus and you have A Nubis, A Nusis, <laughs> A Nubis, now uh, Naubus, same thing. Uh, and then if we're calling him a Braxis, that's Ab, which is father, Ra, the son, and XIS is no is no different than Kis, Kush, Kus, which means black. So Ab, Ra, Kush, the black son father. <laughs> and remember the dove that's on this card, dove, the, the black dove symbolism is part of this system as well. Older part of this system. Dove actually means black in Irish. Dub or dove. When we meet Kronos, keep that in mind, you know, because he's he's the black guy. Uh, the and uh, the description of Yaldabaoth in the Secret Book of John. Although I think that the Nagamati texts and the whole Secret Book of John out of it is a CIA construct, probably. Um, you know, not that necessarily the CIA wrote it, but maybe repurposed it from some 
like a counter initiatory order or of some sort, right? I don't think that it's authentic to what we're told about it. I'll just say that it's a lot of fishiness with the Nag Hammadi. But in the secret book of John, it says, when Sophia saw what her desire had produced, hunger, remember, it changed into the figure of a snake with the face of a lion. Its eyes were flashing bolts of lightning. So that's the eyes and lightning. That's the top of the head, right? The, uh, the, t- the lightning struck tower striking the third eye. And we'll look at this further. Oh, it's all on the same point. Okay. We'll stay here. Nalbus. Uh, I think that Nalbus is Kronos and I'm going to break it down for you. Okay. So we're looking at these letters in the middle of this, uh, coin or amulet. We're down here at the bottom. So the Greek chi that looks like the X here. That can become a K or a CH. The Greek new is this letter. It's an N can transliterate to R. I know N to R sounds like a stretch, but it's actually a thing. <laughs> it's called a roticism. That's a word for your lexicon. When the uh, roticism is all the different things that can happen to R that might surprise you <laughs> in language. But an example, just to throw out one example, nice. the Hebrew word bar. Bar and the proto-Semitic ben both mean sun. Bar, ben. Same thing. Also, I like that example because bar is also one of the names of Saturn or Kronos. So the father is the sun. (laughs) Bar. Bar Barkush. That's Bacchus. Barkush. The the black sun. Bacchus. Anyway, so now we have the, the X of Nalbus becomes K. The new, the N becomes R. That fourth letter that looks like a V uh, is confusing to this, but I think it's a new, the letter N. So you have crown. Now it, it's probably, in Nalbus they're calling it a U, but that's how the Greeks made an N. So there's there's something there. Then the, the beta or the B could just easily be a soft V, which can kind of be a U sound. That's the most stretchy part of this weave. <laughs> But there you go. There you have it. We just turned Nalbus into Kronos. A little more, though, to back this up more on the letter R. This doesn't back it up. It's just a funny, funny thing. <laughs> the letter R. You'll like this, Gabe. Put, make a mental post-it note here. The letter R is sometimes referred to as the Litera Canina. Literally canine letter often rendered in English as the dog's letter. This is a Latin term that referred to how the Latin R was trilled to sound like a growling dog, aka rolling your R's. A spoken style referred to as the vox canina, a dog voice. A good example of the trilled R is in the Spanish word for dog. Perro, perro. Not great at rolling my R's. (laughs) So... The dog's letter. Why I brought that up is because this R is the guard dog of Hades. You know, you have X, Hades, he, 10, say 10, and Ro, the he, Ro, the guard dog of Hades. That's what, that's my Gabe level uh, schizophrenia yeah, for you. <laughs> you feel me? You feel me? Yeah. Dude, that's, yeah, I feel you, buddy. I totally, totally. Uh, so on the, uh, on the diction of Aries, we start with A in Aries, and we go 180 degrees. It's 18 
10 degree counts. We end up on the R, the reverse, the retro, the the one, the half of the 360 is R. And look, here's lupus. Here's Buotes with the Canis Venetici. Here's all three of the dogs. This is um essentially uh Cerberus. Dude. Uh Canis they're Venetici, on the R. Two dogs. Oh my gosh, you're backing this right up so well. Is on the R. Yes. And now just just for people's imagine, I put the moon card in Pisces, but it has the reverse value. It has the reflectivity, one eight moon card, bounce it holds the uh, equinox line. Uh so what's fascinating is and that there's dogs the on the moon case Arcturus is the it's the great horn that initiates the lunar calendar. So I put the moon in Pisces, but it's bouncing off of Arcturus, where the initiation of the lunar can, uh, uh, calendar in Eastern astrology. I think this is the occult hidden pagan new year. They tell us the pagan new year. We think of the sun with the sun card in uh, Aries. Mm-mm. The pagan new year is the subconscious. It's lunar. It's in the subconscious realm. So the lunar new year is Arcturus full moon. When Pisces has a full moon, it's marked by the great horn of Buotes. Buotes is Wotan. In the great hunt, he blows that horn and it starts the, the great hunt. And we go through the pagan new year. But I think the pagan new year is not about the sun. I think it's about the moon. I think they're working on our subconscious. They're working those light codes while we're sleeping. I'm just blown away about this guard dog of Hades is the R. <laughs> that's er dogs that's, go er. That's awesome. Brilliant, brilliant. And chance, I wonder if okay, I wonder if also we're looking at the bio, the gut bio, uh, gut biome um as well, because I'm just seeing a lot of digestive well, that's virgo uh, virgo is implication. the guy. yes yes and that's what's kind of um uh how do i say this uh because okay i'll say this in enneagram like stepping away from the calendar and the zodiac a little bit with the enneagram number seven has that gluttony and it this is the tower card one plus six is seven it has the gluttony um and at the top is where this Yaldabaoth is, uh, at the top of that card, in the top corner. But then once we break into the number eight, we go across the discernment line. Again, the eight, nine ones of the Enneagram, that's the gut. That's the instinct aspect. And the number eight card, the lust card, which I'm, I'm turning it back into a number eight against Crowley. It also has the Yaldabaoth serpent as the tail of the lion. It has this character again. So the seven and eight uh, between uh, thinking and doing both have the Yaldabaoth. I'm just seeing a lot of digestive potential uh, in the in the ingredients, not in the Zodiac, but from the Enneagram. I see a lot of digestive uh, signs around all this. Well, that's the... Sod Yod, the philosophical gold that you have to ingest and digest to convert it to prana. It's the food. It's how that uh, relates to the activation of the third eye. And 
maybe they're talking right. about hunger. Maybe hunger is the philosophical food or the philosophical gold because whenever you're really heavy digesting, it slows your brain down. But if you breathe and you ingest just the prana from the air, uh, like that Libra moment of that follows Virgo, maybe that's what feeds. Maybe that's the philosophical gold for the third eye or something along those lines. The right, the right balance of thought and, and oxygen or air rather to feed that fire rather than to sort of dampen it with uh, a bunch of food that actually slow, slows down, makes the third eye sluggish or obscured muddied you know there's uh because there's this other thing you know i'm I'm... well there's this other word okay remember how i brought up the uh... priest okay sorry you go for it go ahead you go ahead well there's another word that i wasn't (laughs) sure where to fit in (laughs) (laughs) there's another word i wasn't sure where to fit into this but you know we brought up the ass earlier um I talked about the uh, the IN yod, which is AI. But if you reverse that yod IN, this is a word that's like a shovel can mean shovel or forceps. It can mean either thing. So it's either the shovel that purifies by removing the waste or it's the forceps that brings in and births the new. So it's how both of these functions are operative by the uh, sacral region that it removes waste and the intestines remove waste, but it also in the womb function, it births the new, both of those things are part of this, uh, 80 pay the, the number 80. I mean, 80, right? 80, wow. you, ate, you ate okay. it. <laughs> uh, this is so wild you. Oh my goodness. Okay. Socrates is a midwife of the soul. And you just said forceps. <laughs> Zeus, so this number, f- Zeus is number seven. Symbol is four. It's the seventh person. <laughs> four seps. So you basically just said the 47 of the symbol of Zeus and the number of this personality type number seven, four sep. Um, Four seven. Gosh, this is weird. Okay, and then I want to just say, trust the process. Four, yeah, four and seven, four seven. Uh, trust the process. Are we also saying trust Abraxas? Trust the three sixty five. What goes around comes around. Trust the process. Just because the process is digestion, the word digestion has the word ghost in it. Digestion, digestion has the ghost. And what are farts? It's the ghosts of your food. <laughs> That's a good one, dude. <laughs> uh, All right, we're on the home stretch, dude. I'm going to take us there. The ghosts of your food. I just got two more slides All I want right. to do for this right. part one. Glad we're in part one. And okay, I'm sorry, three slides for the, the end here, but we got this. The other thing, this is a Jennifer Weave. Thank you, Jennifer. We were talking about that. I, uh, gold rides an iron horse and all these gold veins that are in the iron rock Petra of the Citadel. <laughs> the fact that, okay, I got to back up. The fact that we're questioning what are farts, this is philosophy. This is philosophy at its finest. 
It's a bunch of guys sitting around smelling their own farts That's and right. describing them. That's literally what philosophy is. <laughs> we're not pretending to be something we're not. Okay. <laughs> That's right. You you can't get this shit out of university. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so the uh with this gold gold veins in the walls in context to this moment where they're being offered this temptation to repair their broken lives, their broken vessels. So this in Japanese, there's this practice called Kintsukori. (laughs) Kintsukori, something like that. It means to repair with gold. And it's the art of repairing pottery with gold or silver lacquer. And the philosophy or understanding that the piece is more beautiful for having been broken rather than just discarding the broken thing. And that's, uh, I think that's a huge metaphor to both of these characters, right? Like part of what makes this show fun is that Loki was such a shithead and like such a, a bad dude, such a villain. And by, by this episode, and then especially by the end of season two, you're like, wow, I like I really like him. He's like come a long way. He's he's really uh redeemable, right? But for something to be redeemed, it has to be broken to begin with. So that's part of this thing too. I mean, that's even like the this the this helps you understand like why do we even have adversity or why do we have the fall of man? Why do we have sin? Why do we have bad in the world? You know, why isn't everything just good all the time? Just a pure white field of oh it's this idea that the Japanese are expressing that it's more beautiful because uh, it's been broken that that actually gives it. That's what gives its uniqueness. Like these cracks are unique between pots that may otherwise have the same shape. The other thing about this that's interesting is that the Japanese word for gold is Ken, which is like Kane, Khan, Kang, right? Mm. Gold. That's in there. Totally. So unless you, unless you do you want to jump in on the Kintsu Koroi? Uh, no, I'm glad you uh, picked up on that because yeah, uh, that was all. One Jen. thing I kind of brought in my, brought to nice, yeah, it brought to my mind um, Tukun Olam, which is uh, th- this idea of the great fixing of the broken shards of the of the Kilipoth from the creation. Uh, heal the world also um reparations because the healing of the world yeah and we have a you know something i appreciate is you know there's a lot of um they're, they're making a lot of uh black nemesis characters in hollywood lately which is great i think that's awesome uh but that's kind of i think playing into putting a george floyd lookalike in the nemesis position in this film in particular, I think they're hailing back to the, the traumatic experience of the uh, that was a that was a Gemini spell. That was actually a, uh, Minnesota's Gemini soda. And so it's an inversion because the protagonists are Gemini's. And the George Floyd thing was like a, a breaking of that of that connection. Well, here it's it's a reversal where it's almost like George Floyd is going to marry them together again. It's going to give them a. Uh, it's gonna yeah, but they the still killed George Floyd. It's going to fix the break from the Gemini soda smell. But they still killed uh, him. Yeah, it's, uh, now he's just a, a real useful trigger. 
Uh, well, it's yep, it's interesting though that you bring up the George. So George Floyd died in 2020. Loki season one release date was 2021, but in June in Gemini. No shit. So they're calling oh, you back to the. Oh, they're calling you back to this George Floyd spell one year later, after it happened in making Kang the George Floyd look like, and then he gets killed. That's by a Gemini figure, the Twin Cities, Minnesota. All of that is so true. You're on to something there. And then Jenny says she just found out that the set of the Citadel was inspired by Xanadu from the movie Citizen Kane. That's Citizen Kang, baby. And it's interesting you bring up Citizen right at this moment because wow. what I what I was about to talk about is this final temptation is that she's offering both of them to be together on the timeline. Two Lokis in the same place. Well, that, my friends, is fiction. She says it's fiction. This is the legal fiction of the straw man. Your legal identity, your personhood. Your corporate self, all caps name on the driver's license, et cetera, is two of you together on the timeline. It's fiction. It's the fictional self, (laughs) the false self. (laughs) Now, remember, too, that the relationship that the straw man. Well, dude, do you notice that the people falling out of the tower are made of paper? They're paper people. It's your straw man is a paper person. It's and they look like origami figures. So we're supposed to be thinking about the 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 fictional on paper self. And then that comes up later in the episode. You see their straw man come to life when he pulls out the book of life, uh, you know, with all the things they ever said written on it. But the let's talk about really let's talk about the relationship that the straw man has to the other the corporate other self false identity has to time that the requirement uh, the requirement for the matrix debt world to function is time. Because if say you owed somebody money and there was no time deadline attached to it, you could just say, I'll pay you back someday. Then the debt is meaningless. Banking cannot work without time. If you consider how the straw man exists, think of a cartoon. Like if you had a, a notebook and you drew pictures in the bottom corner and you made a little flip book, right? Whereas you flip through the pages, uh, each frame happens and you make a cartoon. It comes to life, gradual change across time. That's how the straw man operates that you look in your bank account. You look at your location history on your iPhone. You look at any of these things of where your digital identity exists. It exists. You look at your social media, the timeline, the sacred timeline, how that is all controlled, operated and run is based on time that like your bank account would make no sense without each of the numbers, the, the what attached to the when. So the what and the when is how the straw man operates. So it's very related to time and the chronos sense is the, the false self and the, the false version of time. Whereas the true self has a subjective experience of time, a, a circuitous circular um, inner experience where they're at the center of it. And they can see all points of their timeline at once. Whereas the straw man is going through it in a, or, in an orderly linear fashion. But like you right now, you could, see yourself in this present moment and you can see how this present moment 
reflects something from two years ago. And you can, at the same moment, think back to when you're an infant and, you know, your whole thing, you're at the center of the wheel. You know, you could go any direction with it, but that's it, man. That's, that's like the, the big metaphor of the show repeatedly over and over again is related to the, the me- the TVA, the government, the bureaucracy manages and controls your straw man. And that's what lives on the sacred timeline. The sacred timeline is the digital identity, which is the debt cage, the debt slave, the prison. That's the only matrix is, you know, yeah, yes, you're in the matrix, but only if the you you're thinking of is the fictional identity that lives on paper or lives in a digital realm, which is your all, which is your name, which is your, you know, your profile picture, all of that. But it's not real. That's not really you. The real you is not in a matrix. The real you is not a slave, just the straw man. Yeah, buddy. Good catch, man. This is a hell of a graphic right here. You you nailed it. And yeah, this is the this is where she uh, by she is suggesting that there is something that they could achieve. But the fact is, they already have it. Uh, And I think they both kind of fall for the trick here because his response is like, I, I run my own destiny. This is like the Sapolsky, you know, this is you, this is like you and me having a face off with Sapolsky. And he's trying to tell us that like, it's all, it's all predetermined. Uh, uh, but as soon as Loki says, I control my own destiny, Miss Minutes gets kind of a knowing look and then she disappears. And that knowing look, I think is that she set the hook. She set a hook in each of them. And now they both believe that, there's some offer on the table for something that they already had all along. They're already together on the same timeline. This offer is a Fugazi. It's pulling them away from what is already under their feet. Great catch, buddy. Oh, no, that's a great catch that they're, they're being tempted by something they already have. That is so <laughs> true. <laughs> that's like massive. And how, how appropriate is that? Because what happens when you are born into the system of legal sorcery and they, you know, they stamp the sole of your foot and they give you the birth certificate and all that is they say, here's the offer. We're going to give you this citizenship. We're going to give you this, uh, I, this identity that protects you, this identity that is a liability shield, this identity that lets you operate in commerce and operate on, you know, in the sea of merry time. You know, the Kronos's fortress, Kronos and Reyes fortress. Yet you came in and you already had that ship. You already had a placenta. You already had a twin. You already had the other self. You already had a guardian spirit. You know, it's our, it's something you already had and you're tricked into giving away the real and taking the fake, <laughs> accepting the fake, except you're not really the one doing it. It's determined for you by the pair that rents you, you know, the parents, when they, you don't actually even know what's happening because you're in the pre-conscious state. <laughs> so you're a kid or you're a baby, but yeah, that's, I think that's such a key is that it's, it's something you are, the offer, the temptation is something you already had. And this is a perfect time to, yes, to, to wrap us up. And, and I said, we we're going to do three, two, three hour parts. It looks like we're going to do a four hour tonight and a six hour tomorrow or a Wednesday. So that <laughs> seems appropriate. <laughs> anything you want, anything you want to uh, leave them with Gabe 
at this at this point. This is a great point to wrap it because you know the rest of this the rest, the part two can be all about he who remains and, and their interaction with him. I think this is a really good and we've already set up a lot of ideas that we can just build off of. Yeah, buddy. Um uh, can you bring up the last graphic I sent? Uh this, this is a great part to to kind of to, to divide it with. So this is a uh, this is the scene, the part where I was talking about. If anybody goes and watches it or hasn't yet, there's a strange dance going on in the blocking where they walk her backwards and then she walks them backwards, much like negotiations or bid bids. And then once they get walked backwards, that's when she sinks the hook and tricks them into thinking that there's something that they don't already have. Um, we are, oh, we're at um, the foot of the Eurydnus River. This is the runoff. This is the delta. This is the rinse. And this, I'm thinking about the rinse and the washing of the hands and the brainwashing. And they just got, they just had what they already had just got rent from their, from their view. And the uh, very and next they, uh, scene after this moment is our first shot of rents slayer in this episode. Hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah. There is something going on with that rinse, but being at the, at the Delta at the runoff of the river and there's amount of rinsing going on, this, I think, is a huge weave linguistically for us on a million other things. But I just want to orient everybody back into the stars here with where we are on the map. And that is at the foot of the Jordan River. It makes a, a very interesting, like if you, if anybody goes and looks into the star map, pay close attention. The, this Jordan River, I'm just going to call it that, the Iridanus, it makes a, a dramatic oxbow. An oxbow is like a is a, a magnet shape or a dramatic U. And in that oxbow, it creates a peninsula, like almost an island, right? And on that dramatic peninsula in the stars is the Fornax con constellation. And this is where fornication comes from. There is literally a uh I think it's called a corkscrew nebula or a a spiral, a spiral nebula. So the drill and the auguries and the spinning aspect is uh, integral to this this part of the zodiac because this is where we run the auguries, where we have uh, uh, February second, where we read Puxitani Phil's behavior to predict future outcomes. This is the augury readers. So the drill aspect is integral to this uh, to where we are in Aquarius, where the star card exists. But what I'm learning, Chance, is the Helogium is a clock tower constellation on the other side of the river from the chemistry set. And so the crucial timing of impeccable chemistry seems to be aspects of the ingredients of the plot that we're dealing with right now. Like, this is the moment you've been waiting for. They've been building up the timing for the climax. All these words coming out of my mouth, they're, I'm speaking Lumashi right now, basically, because these aspects in the, uh, the scenery of the plot is all stellar. 
it's all stellar as an impeccable <laughs> flawless so the going up hologium hologium i'm finding is the clock tower this is why i have always thought that pegasus was the tower i wasn't wrong i just needed to blend these two essences the hologium of the winter time does correspond to the Pegasus. And this explains to me why I was seeing Pegasus as the tower where all the information has accumulated, all this, the layers in the sheets of white. This is the stacked paperwork. This is the stacks of snow that builds up in the winter when we go internal uh, to survive. Uh, and you have to be crafty. This is the season of coins. You have to be uh uh, cunning with your uh, fabrication, with what you are making to get by. So here is the clock tower. This is why Pegasus has always been a tower of information building up, because it runs parallel to this hologium, uh, which is called the clock tower. Its abbreviation chance, its astronomical abbreviation is whore. This is the whore of Babylon who, in Revelation, she carries a cup full of precious stones speaking the words of um, blasphemy. This is fornication. This is the whore of fornication holding the cup that is the, go the gobulus, which 180 degrees is where the chalice, the crater, the cup is. But it's also the horse. Gobulus having to do with the horse that is the pegasus. So all things about the whore of Babylon is right here where the babble of the river of the Jordan is babbling at the foot of the bottom of the river running through between the Fornax fornication, the Hologium perfect timing clock, and the Phoenix constellation of the fire that keeps the chemistry set burning. All of these ingredients are right here. It's all uh, astrologically uh, flawless. And then can you zoom in on my picture uh, with that little, uh, the light coming through the ceiling? This is from the La Rinla Chateau Mystery. This is a, um, mm, Ocula, hold on. Oh, it's the ocular room that John D. and Edward Kelly also, um, Faust and, um, Schopenhauer and Goethe were working with a obscura, camera obscura. That's it. Oculus obscura is a chamber that the light can come into the room in certain ways uh, to do all kinds of magical things. And then back then, this would have been used as a, a serious uh, psychological power implement. Imagine TV out of its time. You know, this would have been cutting edge science and mystery for people. but. These ingredients are all here. We're going up the tower. There's going to be an opening at the top of the tower. Uh, the opening is going to relate to um, the Ace of Swords. Uh, when we come back, that opening at the top is important for the light to come down, for the for it to dawn, for the revelation to dawn on everybody. And then what for me is profound is that it's shining on our altar. And for months now, this table has been haunting me because it is. It's key for all the magical processes. But the light is dawning on the table. And here I am looking at the symbol and being like, oh, yeah, this light is going to dawn on me for the rest of my life. The more I realize how magical uh, the table always will be uh, symbolically. But, yeah, this is uh, because 
the sacrifice of Ophiuchus, the, the day of JFK, if you drop one blood, one drop of blood off the heel of Ophiuchus, it drops perfectly down in the constellations and it lands on the sacrificial table. The sacrifice of JFK, a drop of that blood would run through November 22nd and fall perfectly on the sacrificial altar. And so I'm learning that there is a, a anatomical, it's a, it's a mechanistic perfection to the way that these constellations line up. And not only does our language on the mundane, every uh, small talk uh, also align to the stars, but the big rituals do too. And JFK spilling blood uh, would have fallen down onto the our altar that is the table for all the uh, for all the rectification for making things right again for making an even even playing field. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to put these in people's minds because when we come back again, this is totally where we're going to pick up as we're we're kind of dialing up. That's the corkscrew corkscrew aspect. This has to do with water clocks as well. Um, but yeah, we're going to dial. Oh yeah, up yeah. She she wind, Miss Minutes winds them up. Miss Minutes winds them up here at the bottom. The coil is getting tightened, and then they're going to ascend, go up the tower, go all the way up to the top. Yes, yes. So true. And then one more thing is it, induction. We're about to be inducted. That is to be uh, initiated, and like you know, dunking your head. That's John the Baptist. We're in Aquarius. John the Baptist dunks your head, so you get ducked. And what kind of cock does the duck have? The colloquial coical. It's got a coical penis. It's a corkscrew. Ducks have corkscrew penises. Oh, they're necrophiles. So yeah, they're too. gonna fuck with us. So they're ventriloquists. They the <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's so crazy. They're necrophilic. All right. Well, that's a we're gonna bounce then. Right this has been fun, man. I like taking the uh the scenic route. We got so much out of this. <laughs> and the chat was awesome as always. Please feel free to support us this for our work. Well worth it. Yeah, man. <laughs> Gabe over at Cat Cash App Slick Dissident. Uh, you can support me in many ways. Check the episode description for some of them. Like, get yourself a T-shirt off my merch store, like the one I'm wearing right here. You want to rock that big, beautiful pink flower on your heart chakra green T-shirt? It's an option. Or typical new herbs. Use the coupon code Interverse. Get yourself some great herbal plant medicines and supplies uh really good christmas gift or stocking stuff for typical new herbs like really good actually a, a telegram friend of ours just shared how they had bought uh, a family member one of the puzzles on the interversemerch.com store that's my art those puzzles are really fun they're worth the price of admission check that out and yeah lots of ways to support us hope you do we put a lot of work into this. I mean, I've basically been at my battle station prepping for this for like a solid 13 hours today with pretty much, you know, breaks to eat. <laughs> it's it's nonstop. And then, and then we're halfway through the analysis of this episode. I'm actually glad, glad for the extra time because I'm going to I'm going to make even more details come to light in the second half that I rushed through just to get this ready for for premiere tonight lots of fun i'm glad that i get to do this as my job couldn't do it without this awesome audience that gets it enjoys it 
This is one to return to, though. I think more than certain others. There's like some philosophical stuff in here that is the deep of the deep end. So, yeah, Jenny sees it. I put a lot into this. I know Gabe does too because I'm getting, I'm getting constant bings from Gabe all day. <laughs> He's thinking about it, processing it. Yeah, we're living it, breathing it. Yeah, good stuff, Gabe. I love you, man. Thanks for being my co-pilot. It's good stuff. Thank you, buddy. All right. Good night, everybody. Peace out, homies. My Have pleasure, a good man. My evening. pleasure. Yeah, man. Let's mystify again. We will. We will ride again. <laughs>